Hello, Giant Robot FM listeners. This is PMC Trilogy. Right now in the main feed, we are between shows, but we do not want to leave you hanging. And so this week, we are releasing our simulator coverage of Armored Core Project Phantasma and Armored Core Master of Arena, the second and third Armored Core games, uh, also the second and third games for the PlayStation 1 in the series. We are doing this in part to highlight my run, my speed run, of Armored Core Project Phantasma taking place at Awesome Games Done Quick 2023. Uh, my run will be on January 9th at 6.55 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Uh, there is a page, gamesdonequick.com slash schedule, that will show you the time of the run in your local time zone. AGDQ 2023, of course, is a week-long speedrun charity event going from January 8th to January 15th, benefiting the Prevent Cancer Foundation. Uh, so I encourage you to check out any runs you're interested in, and of course, would be delighted if you checked out the Armored Core run. Besides that, we also want to highlight that on the bonus podcast feed, which is accessible through our Patreon, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm, we will be wrapping up the first core of Mobile Suit Gundam The Witch from Mercury next week when the final episode of the first core, episode 12, releases. Uh, we'll be joined by special guest Tom Asnable, which will be, of course, super exciting. Tom's been on the podcast before, and he is just so much fun to talk to and so knowledgeable. So really excited to share that. Next week on the main feed, we will be sharing the audio of our plans for the future. We're going to talk uh, about what we've done in this past year, and then we're going to tease some of the things that we plan to be doing in the upcoming months, uh, if not through the rest of the year. So look forward to that. We are really excited to share some of the things that we're working on with you. And from there, please enjoy this audio. The audio that you are about to hear will include both the full-length simulator episode for Project Phantasma and Master of Arena, and then there will also be a supplemental half hour of audio uh, that's an addendum that adds in some of the things that we missed when it comes to the Armored Core PlayStation games. Uh, that was initially released as a bonus podcast, and we are now sharing that on the main feed so that it can hang out with the Project Phantasma and Master of Arena releases. I should mention, of course, that both of these were recorded before the announcement of Armored Core 6, Fires of Rubicon. Please enjoy the simulator episode. If you're interested in more simulator episodes, uh, there are two more episodes available exclusively to patrons. Again, check out patreon.com slash giantrobotfm for more information. Now, enjoy the Armored Core. This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We are not live, but we are in person. It's been a while, PMC, since we've recorded in the studio. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm I'm happy to be in the studio. It is uh, it, it it is great. It is a prev privilege, a treasure to do face to face recordings. Yeah, I know. I feel like. A lot of podcasts I listen to, some podcasts even 
flew some of their hosts out to make sure that in-person recordings happened pre-pandemic. But after pandemic, I don't think there's any turning back the clock in that regard. People are very much used to remote podcasting for the obvious reasons. It's cheap, it's cost efficient, and you don't have to travel anywhere. Um, but ideally, if you have everyone in the same room, I feel like there's an energy that you don't get otherwise. And we have the privilege, especially when it's the two of us, to do that. Yeah, it's it's a real benefit. It's a real treat. It's just, it's more conversational, which, you know, if that's the kind of podcast you want, then, you know, that's the ideal. Yeah. I mean, we could hit all the, the comedic timing can be perfect if we wanted to. <laughs> I don't know how many jokes we're going to crank out of Project Phantasm. Phantasm. I always wanted to say Phantasm for some reason and Master of Arena. The two games we'll be talking about today, because this is part two of our two part retrospective on the PlayStation Armored Core trilogy. I always put quotes uh, around Trilogy just because officially it's not like one, two, three, um, but there are three games that came out in succession developed by From Software for the PlayStation, and they're in conversation with one another, even though they don't happen, plot-wise, they don't happen sequentially, which we'll talk about. Now, I guess before we begin, PMC, do you want to tell the listeners your history with both of these games? Because you're basically the inspiration, because... If I was doing this simulator episode or just the the, pro, the simulator project with anyone else and you and you weren't involved, we probably wouldn't be doing this just because I don't have history with Armored Core until now because of you. Yeah, so, you know, to tie it back maybe to the larger giant robot FM universe, uh, you know, both Steven and I come from the pretty common generation of people who got into anime with the airing of things like Gundam Wing and Toonami and for me, one of the things that I did with that, that injection of Mecca into my life was that I sought it out in other media. And for me, that manifested in a, in a few ways. And some of those I, I share with Steven. Of course, you know, we both like Xenogears, for example. But some of those things, uh, I, for whatever reason, I, was, I just sort of kept them to myself or, you know, you know I guess... Stephen, were you aware of Armored Core in the late '90s? Because I know you're you're busy with a lot of working design stuff and and other RPGs. But did Armored Core ever cross your radar? I knew it existed, but I don't think it got enough magazine coverage for it to really enter my like front view mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so for whatever reason, I think you know, and we're talking here about uh, what spring of 2000, right? That's when the yeah. the Gundam Wing boom really takes off. And so at that point, you have you have a few mecha games that are rattling around in North American shelves in the PS1. Xenogears is one of them. I would also point to Front Mission 3, of Front course. Front Mission 3 I was there for, thanks to a very dedicated GameStop and Funko Land employee. Yep, shout out to Funko Land. And then the other one besides that is Armored Core. I mean, Armored Core was 1997, so by spring 2000, Armored Core probably discounted, probably very attractive for a kid showing up at the local mall trying to get stuff. And then following from that, you have Project Phantasma has also been rattling around the shelves for a little bit. So I got into the games and then I can remember after playing both of those, often with the help of Dr. Professor Game Shark. I feel like you would especially need that for Master Arena. Yes, especially you're going to do all of the arena fights, especially the Disc 2 content. And then Master of Arena, I have very vivid memories of playing that game at, at a beach house, mm-hmm. you know, because I believe it came out in summer of 2000 before Armored Core 2 would release with the launch of the PlayStation 2 in North America. 
And so that that was my history with those games then. I continued to play some Armored Core. I played two, another Age 3. Fell off the series after that. Probably got into, you know, Counter-Strike, Dota, whatever was going on at the time. And uh, and then, you know, more recently, I'll, I'll get into this a little bit when we get into the, the speedrunning segments for both of these games, but I did end up returning to them and speedrunning all three of the games. I, As far as I know, I'm the only person who's posted a trilogy speedrun videos which is appropriate given your alias given my alias and also appropriate for these games because it's not just you know it's not just the crash bandicoot trilogy right where you're just playing them back to back to back you can transfer the save file Mm. and so it is it is really a different kind of creature than your ordinary multi-game speedrun. you are in fact equipping you're, you're putting yourself in a more advantageous position in the later runs affecting the route I'll mention this specifically with how Project Phantasma works when we get into how that speedrun works. But it was very interesting to do that. Very interesting to do the trilogy run. Happy I did so. I'm kind of surprised no one else has, hasn't has done it. I will mention there may be runs out there on uh, Nico Nico, the, the Japanese video site that could be like that, but mm. it is difficult to search them. What's the, your runtime on the trilogy? My runtime on the trilogy, I think it's like, um, I want to say it's uh, probably a little over three. Oh, no, no, no. Wait, 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 listen oh, to nice. that. It's like, it's like 150 something. Okay, wow. Because, That's really attractive because I feel like if you can speed run a game in under 60 minutes, that makes it much more palatable and much more attractive to viewers and people running any type of convention. Yeah, the way it shakes out is Armored Core 1 is about 25 minutes, mm-hmm. Phantasma is about 35 minutes, and Master of Arena is about 55 minutes. Okay, that tracks. So it's really Master of Arena. I'm going to gripe about Master of Arena. I'm sorry if there's Master of Arena fans here. Uh, I got be- Okay, 156.35 is the exact time. Yeah, I'm curious about your ranking. Is Master of Arena on the bottom? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I, I have grudges against Master <laughs> Arena. <laughs> Very specific grudges, but we'll get into that. Let's we we gotta travel there first. We gotta go back in time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this because I'm I'm high energy. The school year has officially ended. What's the first thing I do? I do not go home and embrace my child and wife. No. I drive to the mall to frantically finish my master arena notes and then drove over to PMC's house. So it's a very auspicious day. I'm very excited. Star of the summer, full of possibilities. And we're going to jump right into the production history of Project Phantasma. Now, we don't have sales numbers for the first Armored Core game, and if you want to hear more about the success or relative success of the first Armored Core game, make sure you listen to part one. Actually, if you haven't listened to part one of our retrospective, do so now, because a lot of what I reference in this episode is going to be a callback or build upon what we talked about in the previous episode. But again, we don't have sales number for the first Armored Core game, or really any Armored Core game, at least to my knowledge. But there's no way it didn't either break even or turn a profit. After all, it launched a franchise that spanned 20-plus games over 16 years, which when you think about it, PMC, it's really astounding. 
Yeah, and I think it's also important to recognize, and I this is a statement I'm going to utter because I want to conjure positive energy, is that even beyond those 16 years, there continues to be you know, anniversary media, mm-hmm. the, the 20th anniversary music box set, things yeah. like that. You know, Armored Core it isn't forgotten by FromSoft. Yeah, and hopefully will be resurrected within the calendar year, mm-hmm. but we'll see. Now, that sort of longevity speaks to satisfied executives and an enthusiastic player base. Now, even though the first Armored Core reviewed well, From Software wasn't completely satisfied with the final product. A lot was left on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Now, I get the feeling from what sources we have, and I, for the record, I could be very off base here. I'm working from like half an interview <laughs> this whole episode. Um, but I get the feeling that Sony gave From a hard deadline. Now, if you listen to our first episode, you'll remember that Sony partially footed the bill for Armored Core 1. And the developers at From have admitted that a lot of time was spent developing the graphics engine. You know, at a certain point, after 12 to 18 months of development, which seems quaint by today's standards, Sony could have said, and probably said, you gotta ship this, which From Software did. Whatever was the case... There's a lot of cut content that From wanted to use from both a creative and commercial standpoint. According to the dev team, quote, the story for the first Armored Core was a little fragmented, so we made a more complete version with Project Phantasma, which I'm sure you'll agree, PMC, that might be the understatement of the year. That's a really interesting quote to me because so much has been said about FromSoft's storytelling style. Yeah. And I think Armored Core's narrative presentation is extremely distinct Mm -hmm. from either Project Phantasma or Master of Arena. Yes. So I'm kind of surprised. I don't know. Fragmented is is strange. I guess fragmented I can kind of There's more abstraction. I know this is an overused phrase, Mm -hmm. but more narrative liminal spaces. Yeah. In comparison to both Phantasma and Master Arena, I feel like at times the first Armored Core game is a little incomprehensible. You've played it a lot, though. I've played it a lot, and I agree it is un- incomprehensible. I shouldn't say incomprehensible because that well, means it's beyond comprehension, yeah. which I, I feel like I have. I mean, done. I think it mostly just doesn't. It doesn't fill in the. You know, it doesn't fill anything in. It, it just kind of lets lets it sit, and I, I think that leaves you to project upon it. I don't know. It's it's interesting. I because it, it definitely is different to me that the game just sort of. I mean, I pre- <laughs> unexpectedly for, ends. I mean, for for the record, I prefer it like that. We'll talk yeah, about our power right. rankings. We'll, we'll get a, to I it. I have a feeling we're both going to agree that Armored Core One's on the top. But I there's part there's a part of me, maybe a little twisted part of me that likes the efficiency of the sequels storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think to a degree, so did From Software. So the decision was made, presumably before Armored Core shipped, to make an add-on game. I should note, and many interviewers got this wrong, that from the beginning, From did not consider Project Phantasma Armored Core 2. Right from the beginning. They said, we've got Armored Core 2 in development, and when and if we do an Armored Core episode, or when and if we do a frame grind episode. Grid? Grind? Grind. This is the neon, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Frame Gride episode. We'll be talking about how Armored Core 2, that project, changed over the years. 
And we can debate the nomenclature whether Project Phantasma is a full-fledged game or an expansion pack later, but honestly, that answer comes down to where you were living when it came out. But like I said, From Software wanted to cobble together all that cut content and release a semi-sequel with a quick turnaround. Think what Nintendo did with Majora's Mask, but far less ambitious. As a result, the team behind Project Phantasma is basically the same team as the first game. There's continuity there because development was continuous. It's not like Armored Core 1 shipped, everyone took a few months off, and they all reconvened later like to some retreat. No, it was largely one uninterrupted workflow. As a result, I'm not going to spend too much time reviewing each of the principal creatives because we did that in part one of this retrospective. However, I do want to mention some familiar faces and introduce a few new ones. So now Toshi Zen, the founder of FromSoft, continued in his role as executive producer. Can I just say, it is wild that he must not want to do interviews. I feel like there are so many publications out there who would love to visit from software and sit down with the founder who is still with the company over the last, you know, and who has been with the company since its founding in the late 80s. But as far as I could tell, there is one interview from some weird game documentary that aired on Japanese TV, and they're talking to him for like two minutes and it's untranslated. I'm very curious what he has to say. Alas. Um, now, Toshi Zen, founder. Shoji Kawamori returned as one of the mechanical designers. Not the sole mechanical designer, just one of the mechanical designers. And of course, you'll know who Shoji Kawamori is if you're a Macross fan, an Escaflone fan, a fan of Mecha in general. And if, and if you've listened to a few of our history episodes, he's popped up before. Toshifumi Nabashima, who I called Mr. Armored Core in the last episode, contributed in a like producer slash supervisory role. Like a lot of From Software's game, the official credits are a little cryptic, so you kind of have to read between the lines, and Moby Games is not always helpful. But to be fair, whoever um, did that Moby Games page, the credits in the official game are a little vague and nebulous. I do want to highlight one individual who we highlighted extensively in the first episode, but who no one else highlights extensively. Kate... Kaichi Sato, the secret MVP of Armored Core, who remains largely uncredited and unknown, oversaw level design, mechanical designs, and pixel art. This was the last Armored Core game he worked on. He left FromSoft shortly after the release of Project Phantasma. Now, according to his Twitter account, I had a run-in. If you listened to the first episode, I did have a run-in with him on Twitter. Sato is no longer in the industry. His name does show up in a few games from the early 2000s, such as Napoleon a Genki-developed strategy game for the GBA, and the Shinobi, I guess, duology, Shinobi and Nightshade from Sega for the PS2. I would love to know why he left from, because a lot from, because a lot of people who started with the company and were there in the company's early days have remained with the company up till 2022. To, to be fair, though, sometimes Moby Games is way off because they could be two different people with the same name and they're still credited under the same like account. That happened with Kaichi Sato, the big O, uh, the creator of the big O, who on IMDb was also listed as like an art, art, like a contributing artist on Resident Evil 4 and Resident Evil 5. Oh, right, I'm pretty right. sure that's not true. Nah. Maybe, but pretty sure that's not true. I did want to take this time to highlight a few returning members of the team who I missed before. These aren't new faces. They didn't start with Project Phantasma. They worked on both games, but I did not mention them 
in our first episode. I feel like their contributions merit a mention. Aichi Hasegawa was the main programmer on the first two Armored Core games. He also worked on Kingsfield 1 and 2, so he had been with From since the studio started making games in the mid-90s. He left the company after Phantasma. Maybe there's a reason both Sato and him left From. And he turned up at Square a few years later. Notably, he was a programmer on Final Fantasy X, Crystal Chronicles, Minstrel Song, the Romancing Saga remake, which is now getting a remaster, and Last Remnant. His last credit at Square was on the Type-0 HD remaster, which, PMC, you have not played, right? I have not played Type-0. No, the only, I guess, yeah, the only games I've played in, in that list are, are 10 and Remnant. Yeah, there's no way you would jive with Crystal Chronicles, <laughs> and I cannot imagine you having fun with a Saga game. Well, I have nostalgia for a Saga Frontier. For Saga Frontier, yes. I hear like two, speaking of inscrutable game mechanics, is one of them, but you could apply that you can apply criti- it to criticism to most of the Saga most of games. Most of the Saga games. Yeah, I was going to say, do you want to sit down and play Unlimited Saga, my friend? <laughs> the, art, the art is so good, and the soundtrack bangs. Incredible soundtrack, yeah. I also should note that Hasegawa was interviewed in a feature, like a magazine feature that Shmuplations has a copy of. If you ever check out the Patreon on Shmuplations, and I'm promoting them because I think they do really great work, they have a few interviews that I would love to see translated. I believe patrons vote on like what interview they want to see tackled next, but if you are a patron or interested in patronizing them, please consider it because I would love to add like an additional small episode afterwards if any of these interviews get translated because that would totally that would be a game-changing moment in Armored Core history. But anyway, uh, in that interview, Hasegawa talks about the development of Project Phantasma. I think Sato is, there's another interview with Sato. Now there was, and honestly still is, a lot of cross-pollination between From Software and Square, both Squaresoft of the past and Square Enix of the present. I just mentioned Hasegawa but Masayuki Saito, another programmer on Phantasma, he also worked on Framegride, migrated over to Square in the 2000s where he worked on, I guess less auspiciously, Dirge of Cerberus, which who knows, might be getting a remake someday, and Final Fantasy XIII. If Crisis Core can get it, Dirge can get it. I feel like, yeah, I, I kind of feel like they're just picking pieces of Dirge and including them as supplemental material with the FF7 installments. Now, when I say the turnaround on this game was fast, I mean it. In Japan, Armored Core came out on July 7th, 1997. Project Phantasma released before the end of the year, five months later, on December 4th, 1997. That not only speaks to the scope of this game, which we'll talk about, but how many assets had already been developed. And by the way, banger cover. I'm not really a collector. I collect a few things, but not like I did in the past. But if you were so inclined, you could place the instruction manuals or the game cases of Armored Core 1, 2, and 3, the Japanese releases like on a shelf, or I guess frame the instruction manuals, it would look great because they are all like riffing on the same style. Um, That's all I could say. Do you have any like pressing thoughts on the Armored Core Project Phantasma Japanese instruction manual? I think it it looks great in the same ways that the Japanese cover for the first Armored Core did with the sort of, you know, the the zooming in effect, the O's stylized. Yeah, it's stylized. I think the sort of, um, 
I think the one really you know big addition, of course, is the Project Phantasma text itself, which is uh, just like delightfully nineties. Yeah. There's sort of an X Files quality to it. Little Ghostbusters, the animated yeah, series. Yeah, yeah. Now in Japan, Phantasma was sold as barring the language from an old IGN article and quote update disc. Players needed a copy of Armored Core to play Phantasma and would be required to swap discs during startup, which sounds terrible. Have you ever had to do that on a PS1 game? I was actually going to ask you, Stephen, because I've recently been looking into Japanese-only mecha games, Mm -hmm. and I had noticed that there's actually more than a few discs that were described as add-on discs. That would bring in, you know, new levels, new content, things like that. But, like, we're clearly not meant to be standalone purchases. Mm -hmm. Now, we're familiar with that idea mostly from the era of PC expansion packs. You know, Yuri's Revenge, Frozen Throne, whatever. But I could not, for the life of me, think of any, 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 like, sold separately disc that required you to to run through another disc first i i feel like any american publisher would be condemning said update disc to an early grave in the american market yeah i mean it's really like the only thing i could even think of period when it comes to consoles is the halo 2 multiplayer map pack disc i did buy that from walmart <laughs> but like of course halo 2 that, but that's the thing is i think for an american publisher to do it it had to be gangbuster sales yeah. because as you just pointed out, you're already dooming yourself to a fraction. With that Halo 2 disc, that installs in the hard drive though. You didn't have to put that disc every time in every time I believe to play the so. maps. Yeah, because I imagine that if you were playing on Xbox Live, you would just be able to download it and purchase it. I, I don't remember. So. I, I only used original Xbox Live a few times. I got like the Splinter Cell levels and I played a little Halo 2 and like that was it. Yeah. I think there's also single player content on that disc, right? Like an extra mission or something. I do not. I cannot confirm. Curious. I, the, the closest thing I could think of is the e, the e-reader for the GBA. Like if I'm playing Super Mario Brothers 3 or I guess Super Mario Brothers 4 to use the nomenclature of the PS, the GBA release, you could get extra levels with the stupid card thing. Mm. Same with like Animal Crossing too. Right, right. That's kind of the same thing. Now, since Phantasma was an expansion pack in Japan, it was priced cheaper, and this was in the advertising, the Japanese advertisements in magazines, at 4,800 yen, which is roughly $35 in today's favorable exchange rate. So I'm assuming it was around 40, 45, you know, if you take inflation to account, which for a Japanese PlayStation release, and keep in mind, Japanese PlayStation releases differed from cartridge cartridge releases, which could exceed $100. That makes sense. That tracks. And... Considering how much content you get, you know, I think it's appropriate pricing. Maybe a little high, but I'm not a stickler for that sort of thing myself. Now, despite its short development cycle and quick turnaround in Japan, Phantasma took longer to cross the Pacific. This is most likely because From needed to find a new publisher. The small Tokyo-based studio lacked the resources to localize and ship a game in America. Also, I don't think they're very interested either. If you listen to our previous episode, you'll remember that for the first time, or for the first game, excuse me, FromSoft partnered with Sony, who not only funded the game, but published it in the West. However, that partnership had ended, so FromSoftware had to open its Rolodex and make some calls. 
Don't get the wrong idea, though. Relations between Sony and From Software had in no way soured. This is just the business. Console manufacturers will often fund development for a single game with no intentions of a long-term commitment. Otherwise, they just buy the company, like they did recently with Insomniac Studios. And though it took a little while, the two companies would work together in the future. Famously, Sony Computer Entertainment published a little game called Demon Souls in 2009, Bloodborne in 2015, and a personal favorite of mine, Deracine. Of Do- course, we have to say, for Demon Souls, that was Sony published in Japan. Yes, Atlas USA picked up the slack in the right. West. Very, <laughs> a very, very smart decision yes. on Atlas USA's part. They don't do that anymore, though. They just will publish Sega stuff, which makes sense. But I, I miss the, like, Wild West days of the weird shit Atlas USA <laughs> would bring out. And, of course, Sony was also instrumental in the creation of the recent Demon Souls remake made by Bluepoint for the PS5. I'm really hoping for a Duracine, I think they're calling it PSVR 2, a Duracine 2, mm-hmm. maybe be fantastic anything for anything like uh, vr related will, will mean that if from software is developing a game for it and won't be heavy on combat it'll just be walking simulator which is totally my speed maybe something from uh armored core related after a lot of schmoozing and handshaking and what i'm sure were a few late night sake runs from software inked a publishing agreement with ascii corporation another video game company based in tokyo arguably ascii is best remembered even though they're still around today, for their close ties with Microsoft in the 1980s and the 1990s that resulted in the MSX computer. PMC, do you have any experience with ASCII or MSX, MSX games? Uh, not really. I mean, I'm aware of MSX mostly. I, I think like most people, I'm aware of the MSX because famously Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2 yep. are published. Uh, like I think the like better versions of those games were released on the MSX. Did you ever play, wasn't Metal Gear 2 on Metal Gear Solid 3? I believe, I think that, yes, that is true. I know I have the, I have the HD collection mm. of, of 2 and 3 for 360, and I, that is included in there. Uh, I, I don't know, I'm afraid of touching this. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I think what I remember asking most for is, I feel like they had a bunch of, peripherals i want to say the peripheral i remember most was a ps1 fight stick maybe Mm. they developed some weird shit if you just google ascii controllers you'll find (laughs) a lot of interesting peripherals and some of those peripherals were even advertised in the phantasma instruction manual ascii also localized some other stuff around the same time i believe they did the second oh the um clock tower game Oh, that sounds right. Well, yes. okay. When you say second clock tower game, I guess first clock tower game in the U.S. Right. So yes, that was. I believe. I believe with that's the, the one with that's the awful cover. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the one that's a direct sequel to the original one. And I think you're right. I think that is correct. Yeah. Yeah. The guy with the, the guy. Yes. With the um, scissors. Yes, right. It's not not Ghost Head. Yeah. That's also a bad cover. <laughs> we'll t- we'll actually talk about the publisher of that soon enough. Hmm. Now, even though From's partnership with ASCII was short-lived, to their credit, they did their damnedest to market it. Out of the three companies we either talked about or are going to talk about, I would say they put the most into advertising. They ran a contest, which they promoted in multiple magazine ads, in which they offered $500 to the fan who submitted the best custom mecha. You don't have to read all of this, PMC, but read us a little of this stellar copy. 
The best armored core of Project Phantasma contest. Customize your very own AC and submit your artwork on either a memory card compatible with the PlayStation game console or videotape with your official registration card and get a chance to win $500. $500. This is a little button up compared to the Sony marketing for the Sony backed and funded marketing for the first armored core. Because if you, if you look up magazine ads for that, it's very 90s. I'm going to read a quick copy from the first one because I forgot to mention this in our first episode. Get in touch with your gun-toting, testosterone-pumping, cold-blooded murdering side. That's very typical of a mid-90s video game magazine ad, or even the mid-2000s. There is some very charged, very sexual, and sometimes very gory magazine ads to, to support these or to promote these games. I, I would totally take advantage of this and submit my favorite core design if ASCII was around and still accepting submissions. Maybe they are. The, the Japanese ASCII is still around. The U.S. branch is no longer around. Now, interestingly, Project Phantasma was the only PlayStation 1 Armored Core game to receive a strategy guide, ga- strategy guide in America. It was released by Sandwich Islands Publishing, and unlike many of their books, it was an official guide, meaning that it had the backing from ASCII. So not only did they run this $500 contest in magazines, but they also helped, I guess, they approved a a company strategy guide for Project Phantasma. I want to take a moment to talk about Sandwich Islands Publishing because their history, especially if you're a working designs fan like me and or a listener of the 8-4 play podcasts like me bears mentioning you know when i was first compiling the notes for this episode i really thought i was going to have to like dredge up whatever i can to fill out an entire episode which i definitely did looking at the word count but i wanted to turn over every stone to find every detail i could and when i discovered this little bit of history information about sandwich islands published i knew how to talk about it so this venture began with j douglas arnold who grew up in hawaii where presumably he still lives in the 80s and 90s. He was you know, young kid in the 80s and 90s, super into video games, and along with his friend, Zach Meschen, began writing tips and reviews for local newspapers. Now, conveniently, Arnold's mom owned and ran a publishing company, SIP, the aforenamed Sandwich Islands Publishing. Up until that point, the company specialized in newspapers and Maui travel guides. Now, Arnold convinced his mom to let him use her company's resources to produce a bi-monthly video games fan magazine called Amiga Games Guide. As circulation picked up and Arnold's reputation in the industry spread, they began to print their own guides and secure publishing deals. Now, like I said, they specialized in unofficial guides for popular games like Metal Gear Solid and Pokemon using occasionally terrible artwork for their covers because they were unofficial so they couldn't use any licensed artwork. Now, SIP, to their credit, managed to ride this wave for the better part of a decade until the end of the 90s. Fortunes changed for the company in 2000 when they were sued by Nintendo of America for publishing a translation of the Japanese instructions in their guide, Pokemon Gold and Silver Japanese Translation Guide. You know, Nintendo Gun and Nintendo... But the reason why I mention this company is because a couple of notable industry figures wrote guides under their publishing label. Mark, Mac- Mark McDonald's a, 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 
I guess, a video game personality who's near and dear to my heart. For those of you who listen to the 8-4 Play podcast, he's Gaming Jesus himself. He's the host of the long-running 8-4 Play podcast and current vice president at Enhanced Games. He also worked at and helped found 8-4 Play, the localization company. Um, he worked on the Pokemon Trainer Survival Guide. He has mentioned these He's mentioned the Pokemon and Final Fantasy VII guide on the podcast before, and I distinctly remember seeing the Pokemon's Pokemon Trainer Survival Guide at my local borders. The Final Fantasy VII gu- uh, Survival Guide he also worked on has a decent cover. The Ocarina of Time guide the the cover is repellent. It is awful. PMC, have you ever seen these guides before? No, I I thought I had seen this Final Fantasy VII one before because I remember there being some unofficial guide like with this color, the same color, but I don't remember. I feel like I would have recalled Survival Guide mm-hmm. on it, so I must be thinking of a different strategy guide. Obviously, there were many more strategy guides in the '90s than there are uh, any other time. Probably, is there a company still producing guides, physical guides, not boutique guides, like? mass published guides i don't think so because i mean the ones that would have survived the longest were prima Prima and brady right uh and i don't think either of them are still doing it i don't think so either yeah interesting now like i mentioned earlier zach meschin and jay douglas arnold were childhood friends and zach did a lot of writing for sip in addition to ascii sip struck a deal with working designs and the two of them wrote guides for games like they or Vi, I think it's Vi. Shout out to Yasuhika who did the character art in that, for that game. And Lunar, the Sega CD game. Zach, uh, eventually Zach moved to the mainland and ended up at Working Designs where, according to his LinkedIn, he was the lead writer and editor of Japanese to English localizations of video games for the Sony PlayStation and Sega Saturn consoles, including the best-selling cult classics Lunar Silver Star Story Complete and Lunar 2 Eternal Blue Complete. I did know Zach existed. I guess he was kind of like Vic Ireland's number two at the company until the two had a falling out, which I'm very curious about. Meshjin moved over to Atlas USA before leaving the industry entirely. I think he works in real estate now. It's kind of eerie. Because as a kid, I saw him on the making of Lunar featurette on the the extra CD included with Lunar 1 and Lunar 2. And then when I looked him up on LinkedIn like five years ago, he's working real estate. I just think that it's a little tonally dissonant. But I mean, whatever. I mean, it's not an easy industry. Speaking of it not being an easy industry, let's get back to Armored Core. A gentleman named Keith Colmos wrote the Phantasma Guide. Unlike McDonald and Meshjin, Colmos never advanced in the industry. He wrote a few guides for Prima in the early 2000s, most notably for Breakdown, a Namco 2004 release. It was their attempt to jump on the first-person shooter bandwagon PMC, did you? I I knew this. I, I think I rented this game. It's it's not bad. Yeah, a lot of people credit it as being a very much a prototype for the the soon to appear cover shooter of the late two thousands. Mm, I believe yeah, I there are that. some cover shooting mechanics in Breakdown. Yeah. And a lot of people consider that a, this a game that sets that trend for for things like Gears of War. Yeah, interesting. I remember you could walk up to a vending machine and order soda and drink it in first person, which is which I always adore those little touches. But after the Breakdown Guide came out. He kind of disappeared. The Phantasma Guide doesn't have any insights into the game's production. If I did, I would have acquired a copy. But you can pick it up cheap online for like 15 bucks if you're so interested. It also had at least two printings. SIP published hardcover and paperback editions, which feature two different covers that 
that which feature two different mechs. Interestingly, there's also a chapter that covers the first game. PMC, you looked into this, right? Because I remember I asked you about this guide, mm-hmm. but you didn't actually check it out firsthand. No, I never followed through on it because uh, I was. I, I think what I'll, <laughs> this is kind of funny given some current events. I think I was in a phase where I was doing a lot of research on games, trying to just un, you know turn over all stones. And I had just purchased a copy of the Slave Zero strategy guide. Okay. And that kind Who of published like, that. Uh, I believe that's a Prima. Okay. And that kind of burned me on the idea of looking for speed tech and strategy guides. Uh, the Slave Zero guide is interesting because the writer of the lore in the game, who is a, a writer on many other video games, including even today working on Destiny 2. Okay. Uh, she put a lot of lore information in that strategy guide. So it's a really neat book for mm-hmm. her thoughts because she talks like she just talks about writing it and then also share some of the lore terrible for wanting to play the game there's, absolutely abysmal there's for, something quaint about <laughs> tracking down a physical copy of a video game strategy guide in 2022 to unearth speed running tips or tactics yeah you know it's one of those things here the thing about speed running is that especially if you're doing it with obscure games is that Sure, sometimes you're looking for glitches mm-hmm. or exploits, but sometimes people people have forgotten the intended way the game works. <laughs> like this happens all the time, you know, there were someone shows up in the YouTube comments and is like, "Oh, can't you just do this?" I had this actually happened to me like a week ago. Someone showed up in the Deep Space 9 comments <laughs> and said, "Hey, you can put the phase modulators on the Gregari and just send them into space." Wow. And I didn't even think of trying that. Shout out to that that person. Yeah, indeed. Maybe it was Avery Brooks himself. Maybe it was Avery Brooks, the the true fan of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The Fallen. <laughs> Project Phantasma released in America on October 7th, 1998, approximately 10 months after it debuted in Japan. Pour one out for PAL regions. Phantasma and Master Arena never received a European release. Now, unlike its Japanese counterpart, Phantasma was a standalone release in America. You did not need a copy of the original game to play it. Critical response, at least for magazine coverage, was more tepid than the first game. Given the iterative nature of Phantasma and what reviewers saw as a dearth of new content, the game received a lot of like middling scores. PMC, I, I unearthed a review. Speaking of unearthing things... From physical media, I unearthed a review from the Next Generation magazine. Now you could tell Armored Core Project Phantasma is not high a high priority for the editorial board at this magazine because it did not receive half a page; it received a quarter of a page. So it's not going to take you very long to read. But would you do us the honor of reading this review from 1998? I I, I absolutely will. Uh, does this have a we don't even have the the author's name here, do we? In this, no, little... I tried to find it. Okay, well, whoever at Next Generation Magazine has has this to say on Project Phantasma: a fast paced strategy shooter mech game for PlayStation is a rare find. There hasn't been anything like Armored Core Project Phantasma since, well, um, the original Armored Core, and therein lies the problem. Phantasma isn't really much of an advancement over the original game. Not in gameplay, and certainly not in graphics. That said, Phantasma is still pretty fun, providing Armored Core devotees with many more of the features that made the original exciting and unique. 
Players can customize their mechs with more parts and weapons, and there are updated and enhanced missions. Another new feature that adds immensely to the replayability is the deathmatch mode, in which players can challenge other ACs to, basically, a shootout. If they win, they move up the ranks. Along with regular gameplay, Project Phantasma offers a versus mode in which two players can duke it out in a number of environments. Now, we're not saying that the developers ripped off the versus mode from Virtual On. Let's just say they were highly influenced. What is rather disappointing about the game is the dated graphics. Other PlayStation games have progressed graphics-wise where, quotes, Armored Core 2 seems to have stagnated. Plus, the game requires a lot of trial and error and resource management. So if you're looking for action or just aren't the patient sort, you're not likely to enjoy the game. But those who were really into the original Armored Core, and there were more than a few, should enjoy the greater number of missions and options in Project Phantasma giving this a big old three stars out of five. Now, despite some editorial overreaching there, I feel like this review is kind of on the money. I have more like critical thoughts, but I would probably give it a three out of five too if I had to give it a numerical score. Yeah, I have weird thoughts about Phantasma. I think that's probably mostly appropriate. I think this is an incredibly 90s review. Yeah. (laughs) Because... There is absolutely, like, there's no discussion of the narrative whatsoever. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, like, also just, like, a lot of the language. Like, you know, there are, I bet you there are some people, because obviously, uh, sort of, um, there are some people who are out there to take shots at video game journalism. And so I imagine some people will look at some of the, the terminology and feel like it misrepresents what's going on. Mm-hmm. But you got to remember... <laughs> if you're like me and you are you've played the game enough that you can identify like whether it's appropriate to call something an updated or enhanced mission yeah i'm already like a level of devotion to this beyond what someone who's doing a normal amount of work for review is going to do so i don't know i think this is like from a surface level perspective pretty reasonable i i'm going to report back at some point on the comparison to virtual on my impression from watching virtual on footage is that it is a much more of a um like a modern 3d arena fighter closer than than what armored core does i could be wrong about that i'm very curious i have not played virtual on games at all and i would definitely would like to check them out at some point yeah same The first Armored Core ends pretty definitively. Morikumo and Chrome, the two mega corporations who are locked in a struggle for dominance, are destroyed. There's not too much narrative space to work within for a direct sequel, so From decided to set Phantasma before the events of the first game. In Phantasma, you take on the role of an unnamed raven, because, of course, who is tasked with infiltrating a massive urban complex called Amber Crown. 
With an amber crown, a mysterious group called the Doomsday Organization is building a deadly weapon called Project Phantasma. Your mission? Thwart the completion of the project and dismantle the Doomsday Organization. So right off the bat, PMC, any thoughts on the story? So the story is very straightforward, and it is narratively coherent in a way that the first Armored Core was emphatically not. <laughs> and I mean this both like sort of in the in the micro and the macro. You know, you can you, you have a pretty clear antagonist, you have a clear ally, you have missions that it's pretty clear what's what service they uh, what, what what they serve as in terms of the structure of the the course of the game. So it's just sort of very, very straightforward. I think in terms of situating it within the the larger world, I think what I would say is that it's... Um, the thing that, that maybe most disappoints me is that it's not clear what's going on with the, uh, the bad guys outside of maybe just the raw acquisition of power. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's the thing I most that that's the thing that I think is tantalizing about one and Master Verena is that there is at least the surface level science fiction plot of you know there must be order there's a system yeah we're going to assert dominance and here it's much more mustachioed villain yeah sort of uh, take now Stinger is a lot of fun I really like Stinger's both English and Japanese voice actors. Uh, your your ally uh, Sumika is maybe less interesting, but <laughs> uh, she's got. I mean, she looks just like RC from Transformers, so that's kind of fun. That's true. Now, perhaps the most interesting thing about Phantasma's story is that there are actual characters in the game with backstory <laughs> and arguable growth, minimal though it is. In the third mission, you rescue your point of contact, a woman named Sumika. Chuta Landon, <laughs> I might be pronouncing that wrong. I don't know if it's actually pronounced in the game. A raven who was captured by Doomsday and was intended to be a test subject for Project Phantasma, but she escaped and is keen on revenge. She's the one who comes up with all your missions, and to her credit, she joins you in the field piloting a pink and white armored core called Ariake. There's also Stinger, who's, as PMC pointed out before, an irregular raven who works for Doomsday and who is the primary antagonist of the game. You mentioned some service-level thoughts. Do you have any, like, strong feelings about these two? I mean, their voice actors, while, their voice, voice actors, while I appreciate them, their delivery is very deadpan. I'm not sure if it's intentional. Sometimes the exchanges are unintentionally hilarious between the two of them because they're so dry and so mechanical. I, I think, I don't know, I, I, I would really be prepared to go to bat for, for Stinger. I do agree, Sumika, I feel like the only line that, that Sumika really delivers in the game is the one at the very end where she's like, hey, maybe next time you can charge less. <laughs> That's like kind of the only real line I feel like she, she delivers in the game. Stinger is, is, is much more over the top uh, in, in a kind of fun kind of way. But again, it's sort of you know, like in in the in the service of what, especially for me, I'm so used to uh, to just blasting the shit out of him yeah. as soon as he shows up. So there's a, there's a comedy, there is a, a a comedy of timing that I routinely experience with this performance because I have speed run it. Yeah, because I guess he would speak, cutscene ends, and you just unload a fusillade of firepower in his general direction. Yeah, and then he just sort of like, well, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, he just scoot off. 
Their mech designs are pretty cool. I do like the Vixen, which is what Stinger pilots. Uh, that's the mech I posted on Mecha Day, and I was corrected by Sato. What he said? No, I uh, no, my I made this, not Kawamori. I'm sure he has had to say that on a few occasions. Mm-hmm. Samika's mech's fine. It gets the job done. I believe uh, both of these at least show up on the loading screens of Armored Core Four. And oh, they I do. Think, yeah, they get. Re- I mean, all this stuff gets recycled and referenced yeah. late in later games. But I can say, having played Armored Core Four, I definitely saw Sumika. Now, I like Sumika more in a gameplay level because she distracts the enemy mechs and kind of acts like a bullet sponge. And for someone who sometimes has trouble with these early Armored Core games, I do appreciate that. I like her more on a gameplay level than a narrative level. There's not much to her character. Like I said earlier, some of her lines are unintentionally hilarious. So in late 1997, From Software was still a fledgling developer and didn't have the resources to allocate to in-house music composition, or at least not entirely. So like with the first game, they reached out to a third-party company, Dragon and Company, to score the game. And I think they worked on some of the audio design as well. Keiichiro Sagawa and Hiroshi Tadayama, who was credited under the name Masaru on the first game, returned... While Phantasma reuses a lot of tracks, there's new music, and I think it slaps. Now, PMC, you're the music guy here. Any thoughts? Are you able to differentiate between the music of both games? Or, like it does for me, does it all bleed together? It definitely bleeds together a bit. If you ask me to to try and tease out what the difference might be, I think in the later games, you get a few more tracks that I would describe as uh, orally raw. Okay. Some, there's some more scratchiness, I mm. think, to the music uh, in particular. There was scratchiness present in the audio design of the original Armored Core. But I think that's kind of... Now, if you ask me to name tracks, I'm going to struggle a bit more there. Because I definitely feel like the tracks that I can name are tracks that are present across the whole trilogy of yeah, games. Like the main menu music. Yeah, Shape Memory Alloys, uh, Circulation, stuff like that, you know. I feel like that's a real test for, as the previous review stated, an Armored Core devotee. If you could, you could do like a little, like a game show like game and play music from the first three games and see if they could pick out which game it came from and or the track name. Speaking of track names, Project Phantasma did not receive a standalone soundtrack. The music was collected along with music from the first game in the Armored Core original music file CD that came out that same year, which we talked about last episode. Music from Phantasm was also included on a second official release that collected music from the first three games, which we'll talk about when we get to Master of Arena. Now, before we completely leave the topic of audio, I want to briefly mention sound design. PMC, on our last episode, you mentioned the excellent and haunting sound design of the first game. Yeah, you know, I was really impressed, especially with some of the underground areas and Phantasma in comparison, I think really excels at some of the some of the surface stuff. I, I think the the locales in Phantasma breathe a lot more 
thanks to some of the ambient noise. Yeah. The one that's the standout one, of course, are the bird sounds in Jungle Cruise, uh, the mission where you are uh, trying to track down a VIP to uh, you know to, to kidnap and, and get more information about the Doomsday Organization. Uh, there's some other ones good too. Uh, Slaughterhouse, which is you know the mission where you're protecting the VIP from Stinger. Uh, also has a lot of like fans and industrial noises, and Armored Core remains very good at industrial noises. Uh, and I think that's kind of um, and a lot of the, a lot of the Emmy noises as as well continue to be very good. Just this sort of like as someone who has spent a lot of time trying to do out of bounds clips under enemy fire, I've had a <laughs> lot of like thoughts and feelings about the sound of an enemy walking over a hill in the distance and a, a missile firing off. And, you know, I can definitely uh, appreciate the sound design. Yeah. I feel like you're one of the few people who are particularly attuned to things like this about old games like this. Now, while he didn't work on the original, Motohiro Tsuji worked on the sound for the sequel, and interestingly, there's a survival horror connection here. He worked on the sound in D2, which I just snagged a copy of, so maybe I'll report back on a future B-Plots episode about the sound design from that game. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's more than serviceable. I know there are some snowy locales in that game. I'm sure there's some really crispy like sound steps. Mm-hmm. Some very, very nice, well-trodden snow. <laughs> In the previous episode, I talked about how I had difficulty acclimating to the controls of Armored Core. And after finishing Phantasma and Master Arena, I, I'll admit, I feel I have more of a handle on combat. I think there are still a lot of quality of life improvements that could, and maybe in the years since, have been implemented. But there's nothing like boosting across a map, dodging a stream of missiles, and landing a melee hit to finish off an enemy MT. It's, that's very satisfying. At its best, AC's combat is fast, frenetic, and strategic, and the combination of those qualities can be so satisfying. Do you feel the same way, PMC, after having stream, uh, having speedrun these games on numerous occasions? Yeah, I think the the thing that really makes a game satisfying from a speedrunning standpoint, but also from you know just sort of a, a pick up and play standpoint, is you know how easy is it to get into at a basic level, and then also what is the skill ceiling. And I think what is uh, impressive about Armored Core is I think it does a great job of integrating the customization of the robot with the experience of playing the game. So when it comes down to things like how do you boost, how fast do you ascend, how quickly do you turn, what is your strafing like, all those different things, uh, you know, it really sort of comes to you know, how does your weapons fire, do you have lock on time, what is the size of your lock targeting window, uh, these things all really uh, connect to each other in a way that is both strategic in the long term, mm -hmm. in the in the sit back and brainstorm way, but also, you know, you really can just sort of weave back and forth and fire off a few quick shots, hide behind something, you know, get behind somebody. Uh, you know, it, the fact that the game has a mechanic for uh, approaching an enemy from the air and blading them and getting a damage multiplier speaks to the intention of the design that those kinds of maneuvers are to be rewarded. I fucking suck at that. I could melee on the ground. I am terrible with aerial <laughs> melee it's attacks. It's not easy. 
dog shit at it. I kept trying to. I'm less taken with the level design, however. I feel like there are two types of levels. Cage match style missions where you're forced to finish all the of the enemy mechs in an enclosed space. Or I guess the more elaborate exploratory ones with quotes around exploratory that are seemingly engineered in a way to trick you into expending all of your ammo. These missions are frustrating because they rely on gimmicks and obtuse map design to get you to use all your ammo before the mission is up, which I find frustrating. I found it especially frustrating because I was under time constraints because I was producing a podcast episode on Project Phantasma. So I was like, I'm just going to look up a guide. And there are some excellent, excellent guides out there for both Project Phantasma and Master Verena, like internet HTML guides. I hate watching. I love being able to look up like information, text information, as opposed to finding it like buried somewhere in a, like a 60 plus minute video. Did you do, did you do the big, uh, the big Kingsfield labyrinth where you have to destroy, destroy the boxes of papers at the bottom? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, our local uh, mom and pop video game store got a copy of Kingsfield four. I don't know how rare that game is, but I was tempted to maybe check it out. Now, speaking of ammo retention, I found myself approaching Armored Core, particularly Project Phantasma, like I would a survival horror game, because I'm not good at these games. Usually, Sumika will tip you off if you're in for a longer mission in the briefing. And if that's the case, I'll try to save as much ammo as I can. So I'll route paths where I'll encounter the least resistance. And if I'm entering a new room in an enclosed space, I'll peek my head in before I commit. I'll even line up my shots like just right by remaining stationary and adjusting the targeting reticule so I don't waste ammo as if I were dealing with tank controls, which I guess kind of in a way I am in a more abstract sense. Sometimes this more strategic approach pays off, but I feel like it runs counter to the design philosophy of the combat featured in Armored Core. I would disagree, actually. Okay. I, I think they very much had this sort of thing in mind. Uh, this sort of you know long-range bombardment type of stuff. You know, I mean, the game has... Sniper rifles. It's got the 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 long and narrow QC uh, uh, FCSs. It's definitely it, now. Is it is it effective? If you try to do this in versus, are you going to get rushed down? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure we can talk about the experience of the arena in a second. But as far as it goes for for missions, I certainly think playing from a distance is uh, is an extremely valid way, and especially you know picking your shots carefully. Yeah. That part I do agree with. Sometimes I feel like I am playing more strategically than the game wants me to. I feel like sometimes the game is prioritizing fast and frenetic combat as opposed to my very meticulous approach. But I do agree with that. I do think this these three games all prioritize strategy, and that's when I think the combat in Armored Core is at its best. Because otherwise, sometimes I feel like if you're in the, like the more cage match missions... I feel like the enemy mech is just, it's a firework spectacle, and you're just running for dear life hoping not to get hit. Now, there are 17 new missions in Phantasma that have you dismantling the Doomsday organization. The single-player campaign is shorter than the first game. If you know what you're doing, you can get through it in an hour and a half to two hours. PMC can probably get through it in, what, 25 minutes? Oh, how long is the speed run? I mean, I can I can do this in, uh, like, I think it's like 31 minutes. Okay, a respectable 31 minutes. And I would say there's less player choice in Phantasma than there is in the first game. Since you're not siding with either Murakumo or Chrome, there's little variation in mission selection, so it's a much more streamlined experience, which might speak to the more streamlined narrative. PMC, what are some standout missions for you? 
I think the very first mission may be one of the more interesting first missions in an Armored Core game. Uh, Remind me, what's that one again? That's the one called Bricks, where you show up at a train depot. Oh, yeah, yeah. The requirement to beat it is very simple. You just have to destroy an MT and three tanks. But you have an opportunity to destroy boxes and other equipment at this train yard to build up cash. Uh, and that provides some very, in- but you're also under a time restraint. And of course, if you're speed running, you're under an additional time restraint. Uh, and so there's already an interesting layer of strategy in terms of how much cash do you want to leave this mission with? And while still destroying the enemies in the mission, I, I, I really, really like that. I wish they did that more uh, in, in the game. I and mean, there are other missions where you can destroy enemies for bonus cash, mm-hmm. but like the amount of bonus cash that you can generate in bricks is like, way more than uh than than ordinarily you would be able to do uh besides that i would also probably highlight i think um slaughterhouse is extremely good Mm. just because of the way the enemies spawn in and drop down on you um dead end tube uh, which is the penultimate mission is the one where you have to... I love that because of its depiction of a a destroyed cityscape. You really get a sense of the great destruction Mm. from that mission going into the exposed subway tunnel that's been Mm. exposed because of a giant crater, and then you have to unlock the doors. Uh, The Abyss, the final level, is just a big disco arena, which is kind of fun. There's something something fun about that. Uh, And then also, the most blindingly white snow level in any video game oh, yeah. ever the uh i forget what is that called? chivalry it's the the north highlands mission that is just sort of it, i don't know like someone someone would probably tell me i need to adjust the settings on my tv but there really is something to a a winter landscape that is so blindingly white that you can't tell whether or not there's a hill in front of you yeah I, I think there that's like that's like a real thing, you know. I, th- I think that feeling is only enhanced by the low res political polygonal graphics. Yeah, I I really like some of the uh, missions that there's not many of them. There's only 17 missions in the game, but that impose a time limit on your activities. There's one in the latter half of the game. I think you are trying to blow up a power generator or something within a facility. Oh yeah, that's the uh, is that the that's the the secret base mission. Yeah. Um, I should know the oh a screwdriver. Yeah. I cut it really close, and I didn't want to fucking play that map. This this mission again was <laughs> the map was on the longer side. It really only entails five minutes of my life. I did not want to, so I just scraped by with two two seconds, which made it for a very thrilling and memorable playthrough. I always think of it as the trust fall mission for reasons that have to do with speed running because the there's an out of bounds clip you can do to just go straight to the the the, the room in the middle. Where oh you wow! Press the switch, but in order to do the setup. You just sort of go to a particular point in the map, shimmy, fall through the map, mm-hmm. and then I look up, and once the crosshair aligns with a feature of the map, I then press down on the D-pad to fall backwards and land inside the zone. It's a very oh, silly neat. setup. Very cool. I really You mentioned this earlier, but I really liked Jungle Cruise, which has you and Sumika infiltrating a Doomsday Organization weapon test facility to capture a high-ranking official it's a sneaking mission, so your goal is not to draw attention to yourself. There are a lot of environmental details that make this mission memorable. It's nighttime at the beginning. You're traipsing through the jungle. Big truth and reconciliation vibes for all you Halo fans out there. But as you continue, it gets lighter and lighter as morning breaks. It's very cool. It's only enhanced by the low-res poly- uh, polygonal graphics. Steven, when I, when I was going through the notes 
prepping for this, I actually commented on this paragraph with a bit of trivia, and then I scrolled to the next page, and you had already written the trivia in there. So please, what is the fun trivia about this mission? Wait, is it the Doomsday Organization bit? Or? No, 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 no. This is this. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, gotcha. I thought I included it as a comment. No, we're both working from the same Google Doc, folks. This is what happens. Podcasting, you all. And this was told to me by a strategy guide, but it's I I bumped on this naturally. The hostage you secure in this mission appears as a very very low res polygonal model in a cutscene. This is the first human being modeled in an. Armored Core game, and it will remain that way until 2005's Last Raven, the 11th entry in the series. That's correct. And it is a very low-res polygonal model. It makes the Kingsfield skeletons look like something from a PS5 game. It really reminds me of the brief on-foot portions in Front Mission 3. I don't know if you remember this. I do. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That also speaks to why these games are probably have shorter development cycles because you could see where they're reusing assets and they are very economical when it comes to making missions. It's not a criticism. It's just there's only so many things to render. And if you're not rendering sprites or character models, I imagine things go much more smoothly. Now, without a doubt, the most significant addition to Phantasma are the arena fights, which players can access from the main menu at any time. The arena is pretty self-explanatory. There are 50 pilots you can face in an ascending order. You defeat one, you move on to the next, and so on until you are number one raven. Each pilot has a unique mech, an emblem, PMC. Any, I didn't go through all the fights, but any standout fights and or pilots for you? The Phantasma Arena, which I did complete before recording this pod, doesn't really have too many things. I was able to do most of it just hosing things down with the uh, the the machine gun arms, the the ones that fire four four bullets at a time. Uh, there was one fight I had to switch over to the um, the cheese strats, the <laughs> the the pistol and moonlight, mm-hmm. which I'll describe it, it, at length in, in Master of Arena talk. But I think I don't know. I, I to me, it felt like these fights had less personality than the arena fights in Master of Arena. Yeah, uh, I was definitely. I was sort of there was less going on in terms of variety of the AI approaches. Uh, not I will say, of course, all of the uh, as I think, you know, you might we might get to in a second here. All the icons and text descriptions and whatnot are all beautiful, wonderful. And of course, completing the Phantasma Arena gets you the unnerfed finger. Are you familiar with the finger? Steven? Actually, I'm not. OK, so. The WA hyphen finger is a right arm weapon. It looks like a little hand okay. that just sticks out like this. And it is a, uh, a a laser machine gun that shoots lasers. It's super powerful. In Phantasma, it has 3,000 ammo. Okay. It fires it very fast, but it's still 3,000 ammo. Uh, it is unfortunately greatly nerfed in Master of Arena. One of my many complaints about <laughs> Master of Arena uh, there's only 500 ammo for it. You can buy it. Uh, I believe you can just purchase it in the store in Master Arena. Like if you boot at Master Arena and go check, it should be in the store. Does it show up in future games? That's a good question. It might. I don't. I don't know. I don't. It, it might. Get, there might be references to it. I don't think there's anything quite like it. Certainly nothing quite like how powerful it was in Phantasma. Because the way I completed Phantasma was I did all the arena fights, got the finger, and then just swept all of the missions with the finger <laughs> and it was very funny a few of these pilots 
stood out to me. I'm just going to name a few of them. Uh, rank 42, Gear Crusher. That's the name of the pilot. His AC is called the Anti-Tank. This is the description. He belongs to the group known as the Anti-Tank Committee. They have reached their goal. <laughs> you remember, um, you played a little Magic the Gathering, right? Yeah. My favorite cards were the ones with the little you know, explanatory bits and italics on the bottom. They're usually very deadpan, very funny, yeah. sometimes very sarcastic. Kind of reminds me of that. Rank 39, there's a pilot called Hilda. AC, which is, is a great name for a Mac, Trick or Treat. And the emblem really sells this for me because it's a witch on a missile. And it's it's very striking. The description is less funny. Piloting a typical lower rank machine, weapons are always hard to come by at this level. And I like also number 36, Slugger. His AC is called the Grand Slam, which is excellent. The And also, the icon is excellent because it's a bat, like hitting something with the name Slugger underneath it. The Home Run King is back in his hometown. He controls a Gatling gun equipped AC. It seems like these people have are having a lot of fun in a post-apocalyptic setting. I feel like you, you must be very privileged to have an anti-tank committee. I know there are, I'm sure, reasons in a post-apocalyptic world to have said anti-tank committee. I just think that you know, what are you doing in your off hours? I guess destroying tanks. I guess because they've reached their goal. It reminds me because we just finished or just about to finish up covering up, covering Gundam The Origin, the OVA, and Yamane, who's one of the mechanical designers, is known as the tank guy. So this AC pilot would be very much against what he designs. Steven, in the original Armored Core, did you ever look at the ranking screen? Yes, Okay. but I forget all of it. Yeah. Well, it was just interesting. It's interesting to me because it, this kind of content, to some extent, just existed separately as just sort of a ranking that would change based on your progression through yeah. the game. Whereas here, so I, when I looked at, it, I thought it was so esoteric. Like, what's what's determining this ranking? And here, it's like it, it makes a bit more sense. It's a bit more connected to things. It's just your your, your ranking in the arena as you're progressing up the ladder. Mm-hmm. I like the arena fights. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an Armored Core fan who doesn't. I think they're a really smart addition, even though I'm not great at the game. It's no wonder that they became a series staple going forward. They add such an element of player choice that makes the experience of playing Armored Core more dynamic and fun. You know, in this respect, PMC, it reminds me a little of 13 Sentinels. Because in that game, you had the choice of the traditional RTS segments, visual novel bits, and or checking out the in-game encyclopedia. You can tailor your experience to your interest at that moment. So if you're bored with the story, you can jump right into gameplay. Now, Phantasma is similar. If you're disinterested in or stuck on a mission, you can fire up some arena matches to change things up. Plus, you'll get a boatload of money and access to sweet equipment if you rack up wins, which might be able to help you out on those missions that you're stuck on. And if you just want to truck through the campaign, you can take a victory lap through the arena later so it can serve as great post-game content. I really like how it's structured in Phantasma compared to Master of Arena. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's good that they're optional. The I'm kind of uh, split on the way it interfaces with the game mm-hmm. in terms of um, Armored Core 1 had a very like defined economy. There was the always the pressure of time. Yeah. Arena fights in Armored Core. Now, th- to be fair, this is a sort of better quality of life for the player but you can try a single fight as many times as you want. Mm. You don't have to pay repairs. You don't have to pay True. for ammo. You get the cash when you win. It, it's certainly, I, I think having that escape valve is good, but it definitely takes some of the pressure off of running in the red mm-hmm. while playing missions. True. 
uh, it sort of uh, dilutes the economy. Maybe that's okay. See, I think our our perspectives are reversed because I'm usually the one who likes the more thrilling bits. <laughs> like if we're talking about something like Fire Emblem, the roles are going to be reversed. SMT, a dungeon crawl or something like that. Here, though, I feel like it's reversed in your direction mm-hmm. where you're like, yeah, I prefer I prefer these like more, I don't know, like restrictive bits to increase tension, which I get what you're saying. I just, I just still kind of suck ass at Armored Core. I'm hoping that will change. Probably not through Armored Core 2 and the PS2 games, but maybe when we get to... I hear Armored Core 3 is kind of on the easier yes, side. Yes, Armored Core 3 is considered on the easier side. And those are actually on the cheaper side to pick up on secondhand markets too. Now, even though there's not a deluge of new content in Project Phantasma, there are a few bells and whistles that make Phantasma special. One of my favorite aspects about 5th and 6th generation consoles, and pour one out because we're never going to get this back, is the ability to transfer save data from one game to another via a memory card. And often, developers awarded players in-game bonuses if they did this. Now, PMZ, tell the good people, what do they get if they beat Armored Core 1 and transfer that data to Phantasma? Well, they get to transfer over their entire unit from the first Armored Core. Whatever unit they had in their garage just shows up. Holy, and you also get all the cash as well. Now, you have to beat the game, right? Or is it just any old save file? I've never, have I ever tried to? I don't know if I've ever tried to load an incomplete save. I think it does have to be a yellow text save file. Mm -hmm. It has to be a completed save file from AC1. I never tried, though, actually. Good question. Yeah. That's not the only thing that you can transfer over. In the last episode, I mentioned a backdoor easy mode called Human Plus. Now, it ties into the lore, corporations biologically enhancing human beings for their benefit. And when I say for their benefit, I really mean the corporation's benefit, not the people being experimented on. And it outfits the players with features such as better radar and quicker movements that makes the game a bit easier. On its own, Human Plus isn't an option in Phantasma unless you transfer over your save from the first game. Otherwise, you can't get those upgrades. Also, Phantasma adds extra mission information during the loading screen, which will become a series staple going forward. This supplemental info includes a start time, mission place, and mission code name. Some of the code names are unintentionally funny, like Rusty Neil, which is, I assume is a typo for Rusty Nail. I love Rusty Neil. It's like Bobson Dugnut. It really is delightful. These screens, which as you do correctly know, will become a, a series staple. These ones are so plain as well. Like all the later ones have a sort of UI to them, whereas yeah. these just have just the text. And what's really fun about them too is that for the most part, they are the same in the Japanese and the English versions yeah, of the game. Yeah, that makes sense. With one major exception that absolutely delights me, which is that in the original Japanese version of the game, the bad guy association is not called the Doomsday Organization. It is called the Wednesday Organization. So much better. Which is... Uh, you know, for me, it's kind of funny because I'm, you know, internet brain poisoned. And so, of course, I think of the Wednesdays are bad uh, Garfield corruption comic. Uh, um, no, what's his, uh, gosh, what's the, what do they call him in that? They don't call him Garfield. They call him, um, uh, I, don't know, I, should, I should know this. 
This uh, premium patron content. I know. This you is know the these premium, names, PMC. Premium, premium patron content. But, I mean, so that's that's the idea, right? It's mm. just that. G- Gagar. Gagar. Yeah. It's Gagar. <laughs> <laughs> not the name. Not to be confused with the name of an Armored Corps mission. No. Uh, but but the Wednesday organization. So when you when you do the mission rendezvous uh, and you're trying, you're going to the Doomsday Organization headquarters, of course, in the Japanese version, it is the Wednesday Organization headquarters. Uh, which is very funny. Also, another great mission place name is the Nord Highlands, which apparently we got Elder Scrolls in this game. Yeah, I was going to say, that does sound like an area in an MMO that you'd encounter. Um, the, the, some of the names are very English in hilarious ways. I remember I was listening to an interview with Jeremy Kaufman, a former production assistant at H-Tech, who I really want to get on the podcast because he is game to... Um, be interviewed and talk about Armored Core, but he had a big hand in our, uh, localizing Armored Core 2. He did not work in the, on this game or Master of Arena, but he mentioned that he wanted to correct a lot of grammatical mistakes in Armored Core, and he basically said, from software, just often didn't care. They're like, and they also often didn't care if the game had glitches and was quote-unquote janky. They just wanted to get it. If, it. if you can get through the level, they were happy, which sounds very from soft. I might have a bone to pick with that, but we'll, we'll save that for the next game. Now, when you mentioned the Wednesday organization, which, by the way, like I mentioned, it's the better name, as some, as a thought sprung to mind. It could be a nod to G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare, which is a pretty popular novel from the early 20th century. It was published in 1908. It was kind of like the Da Vinci Code of its day. The main character infiltrates a clandestine society bent on dismantling the state. The, and shout-outs to Dismantling the State. The Central Council of Said Society had seven members, each of them codenamed by day of the week. The main character becomes Thursday. So it could be a reference to that. It could be more generally inspired by the wave of secret societies that sprung into existence in the 19th century, modeled after the, like, the Masons, the Illuminati, or the, like, the Carbonari. Um, so maybe it's pulling from that. I, I really like the, the name Wednesday Organization. I mean, of course, we're talking mid-90s Japan. There is another doomsday cult we can draw upon if we really want to. As a, mm. I feel like recently, this shows up a lot. In, in, uh, we're not going to talk about why Gundam Discourse keeps talking about um, Shinrikyo on this podcast. <laughs> but, you know, it's still worth to think about because I'm sure if you're in Japan, that that is very much uh, a part of current events. Yeah, that's true. I should have thought of that. Now, not to bag on ASCII. But the localization of Phantasma isn't as strong as the first game, which was handled by Sony. The voices are fine. They get the job done. But I noticed quite a few typos, including misspelled words, incorrect grammar, and missing punctuation. Actually, speaking of voices, the Japanese voice actor for Stinger is Sho Hayami, who voiced Max Genius in the original Macross, and Marge in Macross Plus. So clearly the involvement of Shoji Kawamori paid off in more ways than one, and fans who are familiar with his performance. I mean, you mentioned his, his Japanese voice actor earlier. Um, remark favorably on his performance. No dual shock support, though. I'll be saying that for a while in these episodes. But Phantasma made use of the rumble feature, which adds an element of immersion that I appreciate. Immersion with quotes around. It's not the most, you know, it's not that immersive, but I, I do like the rumble feature, and they at least threw us that bone. Imagine using sticks in these games. Oh. Yeah, I imagine. What, what's the first game that does? Oh, I think it's Nexus. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure <laughs> that's going to give me a headache. I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm going to feel seasick. My favorite thing to tell people is that I'm pretty sure in Armored Core Two, you I just can, want a quick turn. You can click the sticks, but you you can't actually use the sticks. <laughs> 
Of course, building your core is one of the big draws of the series, and Phantasma adds a customization option that would become a series staple. I'm saying that phrase a lot in this episode because these early games are very foundational as far as the franchise is concerned going forward. But Emblem Creation, from included a bootleg version of MS Paint that is surprisingly versatile. Fans swear by this mode. We're going to talk about it a bit later. I really want to mess around with it. Like if I if I was a streaming boy, I imagine I could spend an afternoon just streaming me making or like attempting to make some weird ass emblem. There are some really cool ones online. The game is full of custom made ones made by From PMC. Did you ever mess around with this? No, I imagine you didn't. I don't have a creative bone in my body. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just got back from the club after that music. It's one of my favorite tracks in the game. Yeah, it's a good one. All right, this is, you're going to take the stage here, PMC. It was speedrunning history. You have the unique privilege of having of being a world record holder for this one. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I want to talk about this speedrun. This is probably my favorite speedrun of the PS1 trilogy. And I want to mention a few of the key players involved, uh, what their connection is, and sort of the the period of time over which this speedrun is developed. The first person to really, I think, play around with this run is the runner Peaches, who I had the opportunity to talk to uh, back when I was doing the Overboost podcast. Mm, yeah, he is. Uh, I think Overboost Five uh, is the one that he is on, and we get to talk a lot about how you know how he ended up speedrunning Armored Core because he did Armored Core. And Armored Core Project Phantasma, and really what's interesting is that one way or another, he became aware of a method of clipping out of bounds. I probably talked a little bit about this on the previous pod, but I'll mention once again that if you have the right mixture of equipment, which is pretty much uh, arms with big shoulders, one of two cores, and sufficiently fast humanoid legs that what you can do is you can strafe in one direction and then cut back in the other. And if you press down on the D-pad during the right mm -hmm. window, it will create a glitched walking animation that will carry you through any surface. You become untethered from, uh, from the laws of physics. And, you know, that will often carry you out of bounds. Now, this has, uh, because Armored Core has the ability to skip the first armored core allows you to advance the timeline by aborting missions or many of the missions that is still faster than going out of bounds yeah. contrast as you mentioned earlier steven and this is you know a, a, a the correct observation many of the missions are either destroy everything in a concentrated area or move through a labyrinth and those labyrinths are often punctuated with cutscenes cutscenes that are activated by triggers in a particular area strangely long and lingering cutscenes cutscenes at times too that partially is because you're playing the english version of the game okay uh the you know they didn't change that this in particular uh, if you can think of the one the mission where you rescue sumika that's what i'm thinking of she actually talks the whole time in japanese 
Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> there's folks, what we're referring to at the end of that mission, there is a I thought that was like a cinematic flourish. <laughs> there is an unskippable cutscene where you're just watching a shuttle fly over the horizon like you're playing Mega Man Legends. And your partner Sumika is talking to you because obviously you as the player character you don't speak. And in the English version, she just sort of stops talking. It was like a good 15 seconds. <laughs> it just keeps on flying. She actually talks the whole time in Japanese. Uh, so that's, they just couldn't uh, change the game for whatever reason. So, but the idea there is what makes the speed run interesting is that you really have two phases to the game. You have a part where you are running this out of bounds build so that you can oftentimes cut out of bounds and fall straight into a cutscene zone to activate a cutscene. For example, in the mission where you rescue Sumika, you walk down the first hallway. And actually, you don't even go inside the building. <laughs> you go around to the back of the shed and then you just clip <laughs> out of bounds and it dumps you straight into the cutscene where you rescue Sumika from the two units that are attacking her, her, okay. her van. Uh, there's actually, in Dead End Tube, um, you are able to activate a cutscene after the Stinger fight. So you just clip underground, cutscene immediately happens. It happens so quickly that actually your standing animation is screwed up. It's very funny. And Stinger is already dead and the mission <laughs> ends. Uh, so it, But you also have the missions where you are destroying everything. I mentioned earlier I was very fond of the mission Slaughterhouse. And in the mission Slaughterhouse, there are waves of enemies that get spawned after you destroy previous enemies. And so it's a mission where you are managing where the enemies are coming from in the vents and going and pretty much spawn camping them. But, you know, it's three spawns, so you're moving from spawn to spawn to spawn. Now, Peaches did the work of finding the out-of-bounds clips of these setups. I described to you earlier the setup in Screwdriver where you would go to a particular position clip through the map, look up, and then once some lines crossed, you would then fall backwards. Uh, another mission that has a very precise setup is the Cure Royal, which is the that labyrinthine Kingsfield-type maze. Yeah. That has a setup where you clip out right at the entrance, mm -hmm. and then you actually fall through the map and it's spawned at the top because the coordinate system wraps. You might remember our discussion about shooting the grenades so that the grenade explosion wraps from one end of the coordinate system to the other. Yeah. In this case, instead of sending a, an explosion, you are doing it yourself because the map is an underground map. There is no failure zone for leaving because the game doesn't think you can leave. So there's no failure zone. So you can just, fall through the coordinate system yourself and come back up top. So there's a whole timing setup where when I do that, I'm holding down left strafe and then I boost up a little bit and then release the boost and then continue falling to my left. And if I've positioned it correctly, I will just fall right into the room where the, the boxes are to destroy and end the mission. I really got to check out one of your runs because now having played the game, this sounds wild. So Peaches was the the person who really did the work of finding these setups. And uh, and he had also, before I was submitting Armored Core Project Phantasma to the Games Done Quick events, he had been submitting the run for many years. Uh, a Japanese runner, Needle, uh, who I've probably mentioned before, 
also came along and optimized the run. I think his big contribution was using the plasma pistol in the early game. Uh, I mentioned I'm very fond of the mission uh, bricks because in in bricks, you have this opportunity in the speed run to get the cash that you need to buy the legs and arms that you need to be able to go out of bounds. And this plasma pistol is something that you can sell all your weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're starting Armored Core Project Phantasma from New Game, you sell all your weapons. Okay. Which I should mention when you when you buy it on the Japanese PSN store, it is a standalone game. Okay. I don't know how that works. I've never even thought about it before. The thought just occurred to me live. Huh. But anyway, it is a standalone game because I do have it on Japanese PSN. I feel like it would have to be to release on a digital storefront like that. I agree. I, I imagine I imagine that's the yeah, that's the case. So you have to exit the first mission of the game with ninety three thousand ninety credits. <laughs> in order to progress in the speed run because you need that amount of cash to sell your legs and arms and buy the legs and arms that you need to do the out of bounds clip in the next mission in city sneaker. Um, so that's, you know, and so needle kind of fix the equipment that we use in that run to rely on in particular, the um, it's, you know, I forget the name of that plasma pistol, but it's the plasma pistol. And then later on you use the machine gun arms and the uh, the WRM50 rocket launcher. Uh, as a final note, maybe on describing the speedrun itself, Phantasma, in the very final mission, as a unit, one of the things that characterizes the defensive units in Armored Core is whether they are more resistant to shell damage or energy damage. Mm-hmm. Phantasma, his final form, is more resistant to energy damage. And so we show up with the M50 rocket launcher, which of course does shell damage and is also dumb fired. So we can fire it from a very long distance. So when that fight starts, we just back up, wait for the disco lights to stop shooting because he's invulnerable while those lights are firing. I wish, I wish I knew all of this (laughs) and then launch the missiles. It takes like 30 shots to, to take him out. Mm. But Anyway, I do now have the uh, the the top time in this. I think it's like a like fifteen seconds faster than Needle's time. Uh, it's a very fun run, as I mentioned, because it combines both the out of bounds clips, the optimizations of managing enemies and your equipment, uh, without requiring like too much too much shopping time. And obviously, you're not doing the aborting runs and things like that that you're doing in in the first Armored Core speed run. Uh, it's just a really really fun run. It's one that I've been constantly submitting to various marathons. I've done it in a bunch of different marathons. Hopefully someday I'll get to do it at a Gamestone quick event. And that time is so attractive. Only 35 minutes. Yeah, it's only 35 minutes. And, you know, it's it's classic FromSoft. So. But I think it's kind of where it is. And actually, as a f- maybe one more note, on the speedrunning history, Peaches and Needle have both been in Gamestone quick events. And they both run the same game. Blastcore? Blastcore. That's exactly right. They're both Blastcore runners. Needle, very recently, I think, in the last virtual event, uh, did, did Blastcore. And... Uh, Peaches was, you know, way back in the day, like 2013, 2014. Uh, he's done runs since then. He's done a lot of games, but mm. Blastcore was one of the ones he was known for uh, in that early period uh, when speedrunning was really breaking out as a as a sort of attraction on Twitch. Now, they're both still streaming, right? Yes, Peaches, uh, Peaches still streams and Needle still streams. Uh, Peaches has a wonderful dog named Reggie. I'm a big fan of uh, his is a great stream. Needle also still streams as well. Does blast core does Minecraft does armored core stuff. Uh, they're both still out there. Absolutely worth checking. I'll probably link both their, their, uh, their Twitch channels in the show notes. Awesome. 
Now, before we transition to Master Arena, you might be wondering, how can I play this game in 2022? Um, of course, we fully endorse you getting a ROM and playing it illegally. Go for it. But I would also say that the physical editions aren't too difficult to track down. Um, you could probably get it for $50. And it's a little more inaccessible on digital storefronts in America. Actually, it's completely inaccessible because it's never been released on PSN for some reason. Armored Core 1 took a while to be released on PSN, like strangely, like eight years. It came out in 2015 um, compared to, I think, 2007 when it released on the Japanese PSN in Japan. Project Phantasma, though, was re-released in Japan for the PlayStation 3, and you can get it on the Vita. It probably plays miserably on the Vita, because I tried playing the first Armored Core, and it was no fun. But again, you might get if you really want a physical copy, it's not the most expensive Armored Core game. None of the PlayStation 1 games are that expensive to pick up. And I come from a very privileged place saying that, because I don't really think, with how warped the market is now, and I do occasionally like to pick up physical copies of games, I think anything $125 or cheaper is kind of a steal. Unfortunately. By the late 90s, From Software's position in the industry was far less tenuous than a few years prior, though still a lot less permanent than it is now. The studio had several established franchises under its belt, Kingsfield, Armored Core, and Echo Knight, and had projects in development for next-gen consoles. At that time, From Software had a very economical approach to game development. They had multiple production pipelines and aimed to release a new game every three months. I remember reading that in a magazine interview. I was like, no way are they actually releasing a game every three months. And that number might sound unrealistic, but I checked. From Software released four separate games in both 1999 and 2000, and I think they released three games in 1998 and three games in 2001. Now, to meet this quota, From was keen to capitalize on already made assets and graphic engines. Arguably, this was the financial impetus behind Master of Arena. Now, as for a creative impetus, I imagine the developers of Master of Arena wanted to improve and iterate on the additions made to Phantasma in a more complete version, basically um, augmenting the arena modes. Now, like I said earlier, From Software didn't hide the fact that Armored Core 2 was in development for next-gen consoles. In an interview from 1998, a FromSoft representative said that, quote, Armored Core 2 will be a lot different. We have a lot of ideas we would like to put in, such as having the mechs being able to transform into planes. We might wait and do it on another platform, end quote. Now, we'll talk more about the production history of Armored Core 2 on a potential future simulator episode. And honestly, that's basically it. Documentation on the production of Master Arena is basically non-existent at least in English. The game shared a lot of the same staff with the previous two Armored Core entries. I'm sure Arena was a bit more on the back burner. No doubt From wanted to dedicate more time and resources to games like Frame Gride and Armored Core 2. I'm not going to review all the creatives who worked on Master of Arena because I would just be repeating the Phantasma list. However, Kaichi Sato was no longer working at From, 
which means that there was a new writer on board, A.G. Matsumoto. He wasn't at From for a long time, but he was a scenario writer on Echo Knight 2. For the for real, real quick, I really want to play the Echo Knight games. Oh, you would love those. If you love Duracinate, you should be playing Echo Knight. Yeah. I could easily, of course, get an ISO of them. I... The cheapest option for me to play physical copy of an Echo Knight game is to pick up the Japanese, well, it's only released in Japan, of the second game mm-hmm. and uh, use the translation patch, which I might do because I really, if I ever, ever get this fucking Polymega, <laughs> I have a list of games, a laundry list of games I can't wait to test out. He also wrote Eternal Ring, which is going to show up on our notes a lot if we cover any future FromSoft games. There's a lot of reference, a lot of interviews with composers and game devs reference that game. Have you ever played Eternal Ring? I have not played Eternal Ring. I watched a little bit of it. Uh, Pete Dorr, mm. uh, who I've a uh, speedrun friend, also well-known retro game collector, uh, has done some Eternal Ring, Ring speedrunning. It seems like a very interesting game. Yeah. I think it also got a sequel too. Yes, yes. Uh, it was not, I think it was, not called Eternal Ring 2. It was one no. of those situations where the sequel wasn't called Eternal Ring 2 in America or something like that. Yeah. Wait, so it was in Japan? Yeah, I believe so. I, I might as well just check this real quick. <laughs> well, we'll we'll do it live. Maybe I might be thinking of a different from soft game then. Okay. That is uh, shocking. As you are looking, I will also say that he did some work on Frame Grind as well, which is a 1999 mecha game for the Dreamcast. A lot of Escaflone vibes. It's on our radar. We will cover it. <laughs> you know what? You know what I'm thinking of? I think I'm thinking of Evergrace. Okay. Yeah. I'm confusing the two. Yeah, because Evergrace 2 has a sequel that was called Forever Kingdom. I was confusing Evergrace. Is that the Eternal Xbox Ring. game? No. Is there uh, an Xbox like RPG adjacent game that FromSoft made? You might be thinking of the card games for GameCube called Lost Kingdoms. Maybe. I do know of those games, though. Okay. I had. I think I had Lost Kingdoms 1, which I often confuse for some reason with the Summoner games. So you're not... Yeah. They all run together, man. That early 2000s, the RPGs on those consoles. Now, Armored Core Master Arena released in Japan on February 4th, 1999. Even though From was reluctant to make use of the DualShock, they were open to new tech. For example, the Japanese version of a Master Arena is compatible with Sony's Pocket Station, which came out two weeks prior to the game's release. Now, PMC, I know for a fact you know what the Pocket Station was based on events um, hours before this recording. Um, so tell, tell me, even though I know what it is, and the audience what the Pocket Station was. Yeah, so the the quickest description of Pocket Station, if you know what the Dreamcast VMU was, the Pocket Station is an extremely similar idea. It was a peripheral for the PlayStation that would connect via the memory card slot. You could just use it as a memory card. You could just save your games on it, but you could also disconnect it from the, the PlayStation and use it independently. It had a very simple... A binary sort of Tamagotchi kind of screen. It must have been influenced by the Tamagotchi. Oh, phrase. almost certainly. And uh, it had some, you know, some of your basic features like a clock, alarms, things like that. And also, there is a list of, I think, like 200 games uh, that have some kind of extended functionality on the Pocket Station uh, that you can play like a little, a little game. Oftentimes, these are things like idle games, things like that. Uh, but Armored Core Master Arena was one of those. Uh, so it was interesting. I will mention as an extra bit of trivia because I was researching this and 
maybe if Steven wants me to segue into the research story, we can. But the Pocket Station never came out in the West, but there is one North American PlayStation 1 game that does have Pocket Station support. I thought there was two. Is oh, there's two? Well, there's Final Fantasy VIII. Final Fantasy VIII is the one I was thinking of. Saga Frontier 2. Oh, Saga Frontier 2 has it? Okay. Yeah. Do you know what it is? Is it in any way related to Triple Triad? Oh, the Final Fantasy VIII functionality? Yeah. Uh, it has to do with the Chocobo. Okay, that makes much more sense. You can sense. like level up Boku yeah, and it gets yeah. you stuff. I know about it because speedrunners use it. Does it help? Uh, well, if you're 100% speedrunning, it's required, I think, technically. Okay. What's the hour count on that? 100%? Yeah. Like 11 hours, maybe? Okay. That's actually reasonable. Yeah, that's pretty good, yeah. I would have totally bought this in a game on the West. Did you have a PlayStation 1 O-N-E? I did model? not. No. Right. I feel like it was designed at the same time because it's very Apple, like Apple circa 2005, you know, white, very clean look. Circular. Yeah, kind of like the DS Lite. I, mm. I love it, and I'm all about gimmicky shit like this that <laughs> looks aesthetically good. So I would have totally picked this up. I think it was slated to come out in America, just for whatever reason, it fell through. So to segue into our next bit, I had trouble finding exactly what the Master of Arena compatibility with the Pocket Station was. We reached out on Twitter. We got some very we helps, helpful feedback. But before it, like a bunch of feedback came in, PMC like went into the mines himself. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so if you're interested, if you're hearing about this Pocket Station and you're like, oh, damn, there's no way I could ever, ever actually learn anything more about this, get any sort of hands-on experience, I want to offer you an, an interesting option. I've already mentioned that I speedrun Project Phantasma and Master of Arena on the fastest official version, which is the download the digital version on a PlayStation TV. Uh, if you're not familiar, you if you're able, you can sign up online for a Japanese PSN account, give them some address in some place that might get mail. It would be very funny. I did that. <laughs> Have and, you gotten mail? Well, no. I mean, I haven't gotten mail. Maybe that address got mail. Oh, ooh. I just picked a random Justin in Japan. Gotcha. Oh, it was, yeah. it was somewhere in the Northwest. I All don't right. know. So I got a JPPSN account. Uh, I bought cards. So I could have currency. There's a whole story about that, which involves the Grand Blue Fantasy fighting game. I did finally get cards. I bought those games, Master of Arena and Project Phantasma, so I could speed run them on the fastest official version. Mm -hmm. And so I have those. I have my PSN. I my, my PS TV. I don't really use for anything else because the only exclusives for it all got ported, basically. <laughs> so, or like the ones that I was interested in at the mm -hmm. time, which was like Persona Four. So it mostly just is a a armored core machine, and. I was researching, 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 and I was looking in the Pocket Station, and someone said, oh, hey, there is an official Pocket Station emulator for PlayStation Vita. That's so neat. So it was released in 2013. Apparently, it was, an, it was very, very initially exclusive to PS Plus members. At some point, they just gave it to everyone. Apparently, the compatibility is not 100% when it comes to PS1 games mm -hmm. that supported Pocket Station. Nevertheless, for our purposes, the Master of Arena functionality is at least nominally there. Uh, so I was able to play around with it. I didn't quite understand it at first because I, I couldn't understand that when you do this, and uh, I'm going to mention this in case anyone wants to do this themselves, you need to both save the game, mm -hmm. which takes up three slots in a 15-slot memory card, prime real estate and then you need to additionally make your game save on the pocket station itself the ps vita 
has a memory card utility that you can go into the menu and play with. I'm used to doing that because when I did the Armored Core Trilogy speedruns, after I finished Armored Core 1, I had to go into the utility and copy my Armored Core <laughs> 1 virtual save file to a different virtual memory card within the PlayStation Vita in order to load that save. Sounds like such a pain in the ass. In the project. It's actually, I mean, when you speedrun, it actually, it, it works pretty quickly. Finding it, learning about it in the first place is a little unusual. It's like in the like emulator settings. Um, anyway, in that same place, you have the option to switch your normal default virtual memory card with a pocket station. Okay. So you put it in there, you save both the game, the pocket station game, and there is a option in the system menu in Master of Arena to do so, and you make your save file so that you actually have your mech, your future Tamagotchi, and then you go, and then you have a, in, there's a option to sort of switch from the PlayStation view to the pocket station view, and you get this sort of funny, like, tiny screen, and it, like, shows you, like, a photo, basically, around it of the, uh, of the pocket <laughs> station, and uh, you can switch over to the game, and it, it's basically, I, as far as I can tell, it's, like, a little multiplayer game. I had this, actually, uh, we had this confirmed by someone uh, who had the hardware that it is in fact a pretty much just a multiplayer game. You can sort of play it single player, but all you really do is just press a single button. It fires on off an attack. You can switch to your shoulder weapon, to your back weapon. This is probably armored core. That's more my speed. <laughs> Fire off an attack. Uh, you know, you can actually uh, use the, the, the pocket station does besides the memory card slot have a, of course, classic late 90s early 2000s portable infrared communication port the optical port uh, that you can put two pocket stations next to each other and communicate optically Ooh, that's cool very you know classic game boy technology and uh so presumably that would work as well i do believe there is some kind of uh if you're using the pocket station emulator i do think there is some kind of wireless functionality to emulate this Mm -hmm. uh, I could not tell you exactly about it because I cannot read Japanese. So whatever, whatever it was yelling at me about, about forming ad hoc wireless networks, because it was, it was, I was getting messages that the internet connection would be aborted because it was going to attempt to form an ad hoc wireless network with another Vita in order to emulate the pocket station wireless connectivity. Obviously, I do not have a second PS Vita with a copy of Master of Arena, and I'm I not going to do that. wonder if there's even a Vita in like a 25-mile <laughs> radius to this location. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but, so I did play around with it. Uh, you know, I was able to view my quad-legged mech in the... I wonder how many... Because clearly it's not the weapon I was using. Or maybe... I don't think it was, because I had a pistol, I think, in that save file. Uh, I'd be very curious to know how many different kinds of mechs you can get to show up. I, I didn't really... I, again, we only discovered this like today, so I, I was not. I did not go back and like edit my save file and then re receive it to the pocket station. <laughs> uh, I doubt it would make much of a difference because again, it would just be a very simple kind of two frame animation that happens. Uh, but yeah, so that was an adventure. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned this. Obviously, the Armored Core Master Arena part of it is just sort of cute as an addition here. But you know, check out other pocket station games. Maybe your maybe the Japanese version of one of your favorite games has pocket station support it could have a cute mini game and you could be able to play that on your vita 
think Arc the Lad 2 had Pocket Station support or 3. I wonder if... Yes, Arc the Lad 3 did. I wonder if Working Designs kept that in. You can pick up a Pocket Station for really cheap on eBay if you're so inclined. It's a cool little gadget. It's 35 bucks. Going rate. So it won't break the bake if you're that interested. Now, FromSoft, as it had for its previous games up until that point, published Master of Arena in Japan. However, yet again, From was forced to partner with a new publisher for the American release. Agetech. Not Agitech. Agitech is the better pronunciation. The company I don't think exists anymore, but it's also not like confirmed defunct as far as I know. The last game that they worked on is like 2016, which suggests it's no longer the company's no longer around. I was always pronouncing Agitech until three, like a week ago when I listened to an interview from someone who worked there who pronounced it distinctly, Agetech. Now, new might not be the entirely correct term here, though. ASCII founded Agetech in 1998 as a subsidiary responsible for publishing its games in America. Agitech, excuse me, Agetech is actually an acronym for ASCII, A, Game, G, Entertainment, E, Technology, and that's where you get the tech from. However, Agetech became an independent entity in 1999. This would be the last publisher shakeup for a while. From Software's relationship with Agetech would be long and fruitful. The two companies worked together for the next eight years, well into the lifespan of the Nintendo DS. Agetech published all the PS2 era Armored Core games, including Formula Front for the PSP. PMC, what's your history with the company? Do you have one? Yeah, I was actually looking at this because, of course, I played the Armored Core games, right? So, like, I knew I I, I was a, a big fan of Master of Arena, Armored Core Two, so forth and so on. But I was trying to think of the first game where I saw Age Tech, and uh, I'm curious. Clock Tower Two. Well, I think for me, the very first time I interacted with their stuff was RPG Maker for the PlayStation. Yeah, that was a blockbuster rental for me. Talk about inscrutable. That game is inscrutable. <laughs> Extremely inscrutable. Uh, but I think that was probably in the, that I saw that it was mostly armored core from there on out. Cause I never really played any of the other, they uh, did a lot of SNK SNK stuff, mm-hmm. metal slug X, uh, Taito stuff, bust a move four, which is a cool game. Yeah. And they did. And they had picked up some of the, some, you know, they picked up the, the portable wild arms game. Oh, disaster cute. report. By disaster Hiram. report. Yeah. That's what well, disaster report might be a little questionable because that's I believe that's one of those localizations oh dear. Where, where they where they change some skin color and change oh some hair color. So I did that's, not know that. Yeah, I think that one is a little that's a little questionable. I'm sure it's still <clears throat> charming in the way that <laughs> the worst cover art imaginable. The the game yeah. has the games are very cool conceptually and design wise, but like Raw Danger, which mm-hmm. is the sequel. Yes. The U.S. cover art is ass. <laughs> it's not even in a funny way either. It's not like the Mega Man NES cover. There's something about that series that's cursed and, you know, truly a disaster report for disaster reports, as, I, as it were. I think one of the last FromSoft games they brought over was Cookie and Cream, mm-hmm. the Nintendo DS game, which I think was ported to the PS2. No, I, th- I no, think no, that's the, the other, other way, way around, around right? Because it was originally a PS2 game. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a 2001 PS2 game that got a DS port. Yeah, some like of those... Boutique publishers release some really weird polygonal games on the PS2. There's a treasure game. I don't know other way to phrase it. It's the boob game. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it's called. Weird game design. Weird game overall. But anyway, it kind of, the art style reminds me of that game a bit. Way of the Samurai. Yeah, I have some experience with Age Tech. Not a whole lot, though. 
but seems like a pretty cool company. Um, we'll talk more about the strength of their localization in a bit, and we'll talk more about the company whenever we get to the PS2 Armored Core games. Master Arena came out in America on March 22nd, 2000. Unfortunately, like with Phantasma, Master Arena, Master Arena did not get a European release. It garnered the same amount of attention as Phantasma did, meaning that enthusiasts took to it, but it was largely overlooked by critics. Looking at reviews, I would say it scored a smidge better than Phantasma. Remember, it had a lot more content than its predecessor, but overall it was, I love this phrase, it was coined by Michael Huber of the Easy Allies, uh, swimming in sevens. Honestly, after that first release, every Armored Core game reviewed comparably with maybe the exception of AC2, which was, was it a launch release on the PS2? Which, of course, probably boosted it up a bit. Mm -hmm, Definitely. But I feel like from then on, for the most part, 7.5s across the board, unless an Armored Core fan or a Mecha fan was reviewing it. Nevertheless, let's take a look at GameFan's review. GameFan was usually warm towards Japanese-developed games, and they have a history supporting the franchise. Interestingly, a future issue featured Armored Core 2 on the cover. Uh, Jeremy Kaufman, who I mentioned before, mentions this in an interview. He also mentioned that GameFan shut down not too long afterwards. So these are very small reviews, and they have three people review them, kind of like the style of EGM if you've never read uh, an issue of GameFan before. So PMC will start reading one. I'll read the second one, and PMC can wrap up. each of the reviewers have code names. So PMC is going to be ECM. I'm going to be, who's this? Ego? Ego. And then PMC is going to wrap this up as Cerberus. Okay. Yeah, we also have the classic uh, splitting out numbers for different characteristics, including graphics, control, play mechanics, music, and originality some of these i don't know these numbers are off the charts wild like just the way they compute these numbers all right so here we go ecm's review i will never get enough of well done mission-based mech games parenthesis no the gundam games don't count how many gundam games were there at this point two the fighting game on playstation and maybe rise from ashes battle saw and rise from the ashes there's no way this person played war for earth yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's pretty much it. Uh if uh area and Armored Core Master of Arena 2? I think that's a typo. Is the best one yet. If you played through and loved Gun Griffin or any of the other AC games, you owe it to yourself to take From Software's latest for a spin. Solid graphics, good control, but still no analog look function? <laughs> Be warned, though. This game is not for those looking for a... Oh, a, a Voot substitute. Do you know what that stands for? I know what it stands for. Virtual On something something? Virtual On or- Oratorio Tangram. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a Dreamcast game. Yes, yes, yes. Did that come out in the States? Yes. Okay. But let's, let's take a look at these numerical scores. I'm not going to do this for each one, but... It scored 77877 and somehow ended up with an 87. My teacher friends would laugh just because. Well, I don't think it's an average, right? Like the 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 overall one out of 100 ranking or zero to 100 ranking is clearly not related to the individual characteristics, right? I guess. But if I was given something four sevens and gave him one eight and jumped up to an 87, I mean, I don't know if those numbers hash out. Numbers are meaningless inherently. Yes. But it's like if you take a look at the other reviewers, you can definitely see trends there. Like my boy... Ego. Apologies if Ego is secretly a horrible person. 
Every time a new Armored Core game comes out, I play it and try to like it, and every time I come away frustrated with a bad taste in my mouth. The mission mode in Master of Arena is a perfect example. What is this? <laughs> Armored Raider? Wander around till you find the right outpost to blow up to unlock the door so I can proceed with my boring adventure? No thanks. Armored Core 2 on PS2 looks better, but I'm not holding my breath. And they gave it 66566 and 65. That makes more sense. Well, I mean, the five would would bring it down. It really should be just below sixty. Yeah, but I when I see six, I go it could be okay. anywhere from sixty to sixty nine. Oh, all right, okay. This is interpretive PMC. All right, all right. So anyway, Cerberus, uh, my dog here, uh, has has this to say: Mechs and missiles. You won't hear me complaining. I've been a huge Armored Core fan from day one, and Master of Arena isn't much different. The game keeps getting better with each addition. Solid, well-designed missions and massive robot mods guarantee much diversity. I don't like that control remains strictly digital, but that's from for you. (laughs) This is the last one on the PlayStation. Armored Core 2 will appear on the PlayStation 2 later this year. Armored Core Master Arena is the perfect time killer. Giving, giving graphics 7, control 8, play mechanics 9, music 9, originality 8, total score 90. Pretty str- solid score. The highest score out of the three. Mm-hmm. I, I like how ECM secretly leaks Master Arena 2 and then Cerberus takes it back. You think that would, um, I don't know. Of course, things slip by when you're editing a piece, but... Yeah, that's a bigger mistake than others. Project Phantasma plays out like a summer blockbuster a la Mission Impossible, full of explosions and espionage. Master of Arena is more akin to a revenge flick, like a toned down, a really toned down Tarantino film. You play as an unnamed raven who joins the nest in order to track down and kill Hustler One, the pilot of the Nine Ball AC, who we last saw in the first game to avenge his dead family. I have to, I have to jump in here because I know there's an Armored Core fan listening to this. I mean, different pilot presumably at the beginning of the game different pilot right yes from the previous two games yes yes oh wait wait this one this one in the long run has a name okay so it is generally accepted by armored core fans i and who knows if the lore really matters but it is believed that the pilot of the raven in master arena is leos klein who is the antagonist of armored core 2 Okay, I, I did come across his name when I was doing some deep diving in the Wikipedia. Pages. I don't think I don't think his name shows up in this game, but someone out there is thinking it, and I want you to know that I see you. Don't worry about it. All right, PMC cares for you, Armored Core uh, devotees. At the beginning of the game, you link up with Lana Nielsen. Pretty good name, right there. Your operator, who is responsible for finding you jobs, 
even though she doesn't join you on missions, and even though she's not a flesh and blood person, which you'll discover by the end of the game, she functions in a similar manner as did Sumika in Project Phantasma. Correct me if I'm wrong, PMC, but I think this is a trend going forward in AC games, being guided and helped by a female operator. I think that's right. It's been a hot minute since I played uh, played some of the, the later games, but I think this generally generally tracks. I mean, it's also, let's be honest here, it's sort of a video game staple as well. Yeah, it's a pretty tired trope. Yeah. Compared to other characters I've encountered in AC games, and I always have to use quotes around characters when I'm talking about people who exist in the Armored Core world, I, I feel like Hustler 1 has the most presence. <laughs> this is kind of a stretch, but because I've been watching a lot of Star Wars. He kind of gives off some Cad Bane vibes. Maybe that's just me, but I liked him more than Stinger. I think he's the better villain. Would you agree or disagree, PMC? I think Stinger oh, might wow. be more memorable for me. There's something about, especially to, you, you mentioned uh, favorably the, the Japanese voice performance and the way he hmm. says some of the stuff and even the, you know, the English actor, uh, he's really pissed at you. Whereas I think Hustler 1, by, by the nature of the narrative, has to be more simulated okay yeah well yeah right yeah and so i I think uh i mean to me i you know you could argue maybe as a as a narrative presence and especially the way it pays off in the in the finale a hustler one does uh does like go out with a bigger bang certainly than than stinger does but stinger (laughs) stinger gets really mad (laughs) in a way that (laughs) hustler one doesn't and i appreciate that i like the gravelly tones of hustler's voice maybe that's where i was drawing the cad bane connection the English voice actor, I can't speak to his Japanese counterpart. Now, plot-wise, and this is to the game's credit, I think, the game is much more open than Phantasma, which featured missions all centered around dismantling the Doomsday Organization, also known as the Wednesday Organization. Master Arena is more like the first game in that you work your way through a variety of seemingly unrelated missions, rushing to a descending meteor to acquire a valuable material, escorting a submarine battalion, exploring a derelict spacecraft from before the Age of Destruction. Even though it seems more jumbled, I prefer this less guided and more open-net approach to storytelling. While none of the missions are narratively deep or complex, they each reveal a new facet about this post-apocalyptic world, which is usually just corporations suck, but I liked it nonetheless. PMC, do you have standout missions in this one? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interest. There's a few interesting gameplay scenarios. All the missions feel a lot more uh, clipped and shorter to me, but I do think they offer some really interesting scenarios. Uh, the one that you mentioned about the derelict spacecraft, I think, is very memorable. I like the idea of that one. Same with the meteor one. I like this, the narrative conceit. Fighting the giant tank in the desert mm-hmm. is one that really paves the way, I think, for, for future. Uh, in the future, there's going to be a lot more destroy the huge thing in the desert missions <laughs> are they a pain in the ass because it reminds me of there's a mission like that where you're fighting kind of a tank in valkyra chronicles which is such a pain in the ass yeah a little bit of that flavor you're you're not wrong not wrong to think of that it's not it's not always friendly when you're when you're dealing with those missions uh i i kind of miss a little bit some of the the labyrinthine areas from phantasma there's not really any particular mission i can think of like that is by itself uh, par- particularly lengthy. Mm. I, I, I kind of, I don't know. I kind of wish there was. I agree with you, even though sometimes in the moment those missions frustrated me. We'll talk more about our general takes a bit later, but I think you're definitely onto something there. Now, given the title of the game, Master of Arena, it's no surprise that arena fights factor into the game's story. In addition to Lana Nielsen, there's another character you cross paths with, Alan Cubis 
who's a big wheel at Projtech, a company that develops AC parts and that becomes your sponsor. Whenever I play an AC game, I'm more invested in the world-building aspects um, of the more mundane missions as opposed to the overarching story, which, like in the first game, turns out to be instigated by a rogue AI with ambitions to rebuild humanity. I definitely felt like this was the game that did the most good work with emails. Yes. I think the emails, I mean, not that there weren't some good emails in the original game, but the correspondence that you get from Lana and Elon really communicates those characters. It complements the performances being done in the missions. And I definitely appreciate that. And I appreciate just the sort of like, procedural slap fighting <laughs> that's happening i like lana more than sumika i guess if there's an armored core best girl it's lana i don't know what competition there is <laughs> and uh, you know you could argue that based on i guess spoilers in the plot i should also note that master arena takes place concurrently with the first game that's all i had to say there um you'll remember that project phantasma is a prequel this game takes place as armored core one's happening or so the Wikipedia page tells me. Yeah, I'm actually, I, I, I'm i not sure what the ordering of the games is. I wasn't actually sure if Phantasma has a fixed ordering related to the other games. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, I mean, Master Arena certainly has a fixed ordering related to two, and that's really what matters. Yeah, but I, I think like. two takes place like, what, 85 years in the yes, future? Yes, that's right, on Mars. Get your ass to Moss. Now, by the late 90s, Frum had multiple teams working internally on projects. As a result, it was no longer viable or financially advantageous to outsource music composition or sound design to other companies like they had in the past. So they put out an ad in late 97, early 98, which two budding musicians straight out of college, Kota Hoshino and Tsukasa Saito, answered. Now, this is fun, too, because we get to see Frum Software basically become the company that is today. Hoshino and Saito have been with From Software since 1998, a whopping 24 years. It's not an overstatement to say that their compositional talents and ear for ominous and contemplative soundscapes have left an indelible mark on the studio's output. In fact, considering how important atmosphere is to the Soulsborne games, you can partially credit their talent to the genre's success. And the pair haven't slowed down. Far from it. Hoshino and Saito were both sound designers on Elden Ring, and Saito also helped score it. But like I said, their start in the industry was humble. Their first game was Echo Night, which features a really haunted soundscape and some understated but chilling tunes. I feel like they really came into their own with Armored Core 2 and later games, but suffice it to say, they scored Master of Arena and did a fine job. While Master of Arena reuses some old tracks, the new pieces fit right in. Lots of thumping electronic pieces, PMC, can, again, same question as with Phantasma. Could you differentiate Master Arena's music from the previous two entries? Yeah, so I, I think following what, what I said before, the, the thing that about, especially Kota Hoshino's music, I think is that it tends to be, it tends to sound like someone who has refused to touch a compositional program 
Okay. Which is to say, it sounds like someone who really plays music by ear. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's kind of the effect. And I, I think it's interesting when you combine that with the soundscape of Armored Core and the... Uh, you know, the the effects the the you know the when I say soundscape I mean literally the timbre of the sounds the kind of industrial electronic music that's already being used there uh, and you get some really interesting effects uh, I would highlight in particular if you want to learn more about Kota Hoshino's music uh, the YouTuber and video game music composer Thor High Heels has a I've heard that name as if some videos about Hoshino. They tend to focus less on Armored Core and more on some of the other from software uh, games, but I would definitely recommend checking those out. Uh, and also, Thor High Heels, of course, was the composer for Umarangi Generation, hmm. a great uh, mecha adjacent video game that certainly touches on some uh, you know important things. Uh, so, you know, certainly check out that soundtrack if you want to hear someone who is inspired, I think, by what what Hoshino has done. Yeah, I'm looking over his credits. If, assuming we do this for years to come, he's going to pop up a lot. Armored Core 2, Frame Gride, like I mentioned before, Armored Core 3, Nexus, Nine Breaker, Formula Front 4, Chrome Hounds, 4 Answer, 5. If you're interested in Soul stuff, he did not... Scored Dark Souls one. I think Sakuraba scored that. He's definitely worked on those the um, Dark Souls games. I'm sure multiple uh, composers did. Mm-hmm. He worked on Dark Souls two, Scholar of the First Sin, Dark Souls three. He worked on Sekiro and Elden Ring. I should say he worked on those as sound a sound designer, not music composition. But still, it's quite the feather in one's cap. Is I feel like often people are talking about the atmosphere of those games, which are influenced mightily by sound design. That being said, the amount of new music composed for Master Arena didn't warrant its own soundtrack released. However, in 1999, FromSoft released an album called Armored Core Original Best Tracks, or excuse me, Original Best Track, singular, which compiles 20 pieces, some of which are remixes and some of which are original pieces from the first three Armored Core games. All the music you're hearing in this episode was pulled from the soundtrack. And it's it's good. It's good background music. It's, if you're hosting a dance party or rave i think it's suitable i've never hosted a party before and hopefully never will in the future but suffice it to say this music could potentially fit right in i should also note that remix music from master arena has appeared in a few fan albums over the years such as the answer an armored core tribute album that came out in 2010 there are other fan releases that use music from master arena too which speaks maybe to the Relev- continued relevance and enthusiasm of Armored Core's fan base in Japan. I can't speak to it personally, but you mentioned before like there are people streaming the game on Nico Nico. So the emphasis on and prioritization of the arena alters the mission-to-mission rhythm of Master of Arena. Before we get to the extra modes, which includes all of the arena stuff, I want to discuss how these changes affect the single-player campaign. I imagine we're going to have a few things to talk about here as PMC vents his frustrations against Master of Arena. So, Master of Arena fans, you might want to turn off the podcast now. 
First, Master Arena is a scotch longer than Project Phantasma and is noticeably more difficult. PMC, would you agree with both those statements? Yeah, I, I compared to compared to Project Phantasma, I think that's definitely I feel true. Like Phantasma is probably the easiest Armored Core game. Yeah, there is there a a different person would say there are balance issues in Phantasma. <laughs> There are 19 missions in Master Arena, some of which are mandatory arena fights. This tangibly changes the experience of playing Armored Core, I think. In the previous games, there are crest and troughs, highs and lows, moments of respite, sneaking through a jungle or navigating a subterranean installation, and moments of frenzy, attempting to dodge a stream of missiles. And some of those missions kind of exist in Master Arena, but I feel like it's all gas, no brakes. In addition to the arena fights, there are also more, I guess you could call them mid-bosses placed at the end of levels, which ups the difficulty and frustration level because you could ace a level and master the level design and just be stuck at some like on some bullshit mech. PMC, do you agree with this statement? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think it's an interesting question is because there are definitely missions in the first armored core where you would run into a mech towards the end but like they were sprinkled in more and more as the game went on and so like they're almost at the end of every mission in this game and in this yeah in this game i don't know in this game well part of the issue is like half the time it's just hustler one um and not in a fun way like that's the one of the reasons i like stinger better is because each time you run into stinger i feel like he's doing a slightly different a slightly different dance whereas like hustler one when you fight him in the various elon cubas things it's like whatever the only one that really jumps out at me in this game is the uh, the amphibious guy uh, when he jumps out during the uh, that one mission, mm. um, which also uh, <laughs> uh, when you do the speed run, you always let your ally die because it skips the cutscene at the end of the mission. That's not the arena fight with the guy who, like surfing, is it? No, 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 okay. He's stuck in my mind. That's why. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, as far as like, I don't know. Like there are frequently. ACs at the end. I think I think the ACs at the end of the mission are less special in Master of Arena because there are required arena fights. Yeah. In Armored Core True. One, you had a ranking, but you couldn't challenge ACs directly. So when you ran into them into the field, it was like, oh shit, it's another Raven. Yeah. In Master of Arena, like oh, I just had to fight like ten of you. Like, can we just not do this right now? Yeah. And especially for someone who's not good at Armored Core, this I find this particularly grating when I'm playing. Now, in principle, I really like the one-on-one fights. In some respects, and I said this in our last episode, for me, they're the platonic idea, like the quintessence of Armored Core. These encounters are strategic, sometimes, and require players to not only take into consideration the strengths of their build, but its weaknesses, too, and then, I guess, upgrade their mech accordingly. These cage matches play out like a duel with both mechs circling each other until someone lands a killing blow, and they can be thrilling and... They're often very fun, but they can also be very hard. And I feel that sometimes the frenzy of the combat buckles under the weight of the engine and the power of the PlayStation 1, both of which, technologically speaking, are at their most primitive. In other words, some of these duels are incredibly difficult, and it feels like the odds are unfairly stacked against the player, which is frustrating and upsets the natural progression of this game. Like, these extra fights and these extra arena fights really damage the flow of this game. When you say extra arena fights, I just want to be clear. Are we talking about... The I guess are- the fact that arena fights are mandatory. The arena exist. fights required for progression. Yeah. Be- we're not talking about disc two. There are, there are literally mechs on disc two that are cheating. 
So I, I have questions about that because we, um, <laughs> because I didn't really dive too deep into mm. this too, though. I'm very curious about it, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, speaking of the arena, let's let's talk about it. The S Extra mode, which was introduced in Phantasma, returns, and it's in the other all the other games. PMC, I believe so. All the nice things I said about it before still apply, and for the follow-up, FromSoft went out of its way to really make the arena the main part of the game. There are now 50 more matches, upping the total to 100, the majority of which are included on the second disc and are completely optional. Now, PMC, did you tool around at all with the arena mode, like the second disc stuff? Like, what is on the second disc? So the second disc uh, has a bunch of, like, themed arenas where... You will you'll have to like have like a certain set of legs to, to run through it. You have mm-hmm. to show up with a certain build. It has other kinds of theme arenas. Like there's a, there's like a FromSoft arena where you fight the developers. I'm sure we'll get into that in a second. Um, there's uh, and then there's like there's various there's different themed arenas. Is really the way it is broken up. That's pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. It's neat. I I didn't do too much with it. I so for prepping for this podcast, I did do all of the disc one arena fights, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then I I kind of looked at the disc too and i was like i'm i'm checked out i can't i hear some of them it. are incredibly difficult and it's a real time sink yeah i i know i did it as a kid when i was cheating with the game shark because <laughs> i would i would use the uh the large missile i think the one the really slow one mm-hmm. uh and just sort of hang around um i don't know i i'm here's the thing there's a part of me that wants to do it to say I did it. Then there's also the part of me that wants to play video games for fun. Yeah, well, there you go. That's that's the dilemma. And if that wasn't enough, there's a mode called Ranker MK, which allows people to customize enemy ACs in special matches. With the exception of maybe Virtual On, I can't think of a contemporary mecha series in the early 2000s that offered as much player choice as far as customization went as Master of Arena did. I, I think that's why. How do you how do you perceive the fan base? How do you perceive the fan base feels about Master Arena? Are they warm towards it? Oh, I think they love it. Yeah, that's. I think I get the same feeling too. I get it has an appeal, especially just based on sheer content. And I feel like a lot of hardcore armored core fans really like arena matches. And I think they also really like playing against other people, which is something I'm both not interested in and really not <laughs> capable of doing. Which I guess we'll talk about in a few minutes. Now, speaking of customization, the Emblem Creator is back, which FromSoft used to showcase some neat Easter eggs. Master Arena, as PMC just mentioned, has an EX Arena that is made up of FromSoft employees, each with their own distinct emblem. Some of these designs are excellent. I suggest tracking them down. They're not hard to find. Also, there are arenas dedicated to Japanese game journalists from popular magazines like Famitsu, and winners from a Project Phantasma tournament. I would I would be so cool. I would tell all, my kids, my grandkids, if my emblem was immortalized in a video game as I performed well in a Project Phantasma tournament. I I, I went through all of the emblems um, connected to from software employees. Um, Zins Zins is cool. He's the um, the founder, like I mentioned before. His is like two swords crossing. The swords are blue. It's cool. It says from software. Um, who's I just forgot his name. That's why I paused there. Nabashima, the producer. Actually, his is probably the best. It's just I think it's just him smoking a cigarette. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> and there are a few other cute ones. I suggest. Yeah, Nabashima really takes the cake. It is that good. It's just again, I presume it's him smoking a cigarette. It's very cool. And some of the other ones are 
super dope. Even just like the nondescript mechas that you see in the arena, all of them have very cool designs. A lot of thought, I imagine, went into making those emblems. So I think they're definitely worthy to check out. As with the previous two games, Master of Arena supports the PlayStation Link Cable. I didn't mention that before, but Project Phantasma also supports the Link Cable and allows two players to go head-to-head using two separate TVs and two separate PlayStation consoles. This is very cool. And kudos to From Software. However, given that Master of Arena has two discs, From programmed it so that you only need one copy of the game to take advantage of this feature, which is awesome. If I was a core head growing up, I would have totally made use of this. Um, I guess I could make use of it now. I No, I, I would need a second PlayStation, but it's more available to me than it was with the previous two games. Did you see Corehead in any of your research, or did you just coin that? No, that's why I put quotes around okay. Corehead. All right, do you disprove? I I don't. I'm not sure about that. I'm not. <laughs> I guess this this qualifies. I mentioned comedy at the beginning of the podcast. I guess this this merits uh, laughter. Now, unfortunately, the English version of the game that there was an issue with the link cable mode for whatever reason. Player 2 didn't have a radar in this mode, so players could send their disc to Age Tech to fix it. I did not test this out. I did buy a physical copy, and for the record, it wasn't the most expensive thing in the world, $45 for it. I got a manual case. The case has some um, wear and tear on it, but the discs are playable. So again, if you're interested in tracking down a physical copy, and really, if you don't want, if you want to pl- go down a legal route, that's your only option at this point, because it hasn't been released in the United States on any digital storefronts, correct? Yeah, your your alternative would be to play the Japanese version on PSN, which is doable, right? Which is doable. Yeah, yeah as I mentioned earlier, you can you can get a JP PSN account and get the get the card and buy it on you know the digital storefront. And also, lastly, like with Phantasma, you can transfer your save. Which does it? I know Human Plus is a thing in Master Arena. I didn't use it. I cheese the game in other ways. In order, do you know if in order to get Human Plus, you have to transfer over previous saves? I'm yeah. sure that will do the trick. Yeah, but you, you can't unlock Human Plus in either Phantasm or Master Room. Right, you, you have to load a save. That's what I thought. Also, follow-up question. Do these save files transfer over to Armored Core 2? No. Oh, fuck. Really? I'm pretty sure not. If someone, if that's different, someone tell me, but I'm pretty sure oh, not. That's, I feel like that's low-hanging fruit from software. It's like Suikoden 3. You could do that with Suikoden in other games, could right? Could you? I what, think was so. there any PS1, PS2 transfers? I want to say yes. Okay. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, those of you listening to this. I don't know. I know, for example, the GBA you could. Like, GBA, you could literally put a GBA card in your DS. That right, may, I right. Might, maybe I'm over- Was that for anything besides Pokemon, though? Sonic Adventure. Uh, no, not Sonic Adventure, but Sonic Advance. Th- okay. Something. Mm-hmm. PMC, you're also privileged with speedrunning knowledge for this game. <laughs> I'm cursed, more like. So- Steven kind of alluded to before that I have some some gripes with this game. And really, the thing that I would say is that it's kind of a... The, there is a portion of the mid-game where you have some flexibility in terms of whether you can do... Like, you have to get like a certain number of invisible points. And those points can be acquired by either doing missions or doing a, a sub-arena fights uh, in order to progress to unlock the main arena, at which point you are required to do all of the main arena fights what is frustrating, of course, is that the arena fights are just like unhappy. <laughs> they the there is an optimal method for the arena fights, which I'll describe in a second. But what's even more frustrating is that you cannot turn off the automatic replay. 
which like the replay functionality kind of cool. It, what that is literally what it is, is a replay of the arena fight that you just did. I believe you can actually save the replay, view the replay. There's a whole functionality for replays in there. Uh, and you can, and I believe that works for versus mode as well. Kind of cool. But if you're trying to speed run, you know, you have to just mash through this replay over the course of, you know, 20 fights that you have to do in order to get to the end credits of Master Arena. So that's frustrating. Uh, besides that, you might be wondering, okay, PMC, what's the deal? How do you how do you speed run the arena fights? I've mentioned before in Armored Core 1 and earlier in this podcast that if you do a aerial blade attack that you get a huge damage multiplier and so you're like okay that's great but a lot of these enemies are kind of squirrely aren't they like how are you really going to land it that often yeah so there's two 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 uh ingredients to the stew here one of those is that you fight every fight in the parking garage (laughs) you just kill the verticality of the game completely no verticality that's saying my tune number two is that there is a handgun, uh, I think it's like the HD-01, that kind of acts as like a shotgun, and a lot of enemies, you can basically, uh, you can stun lock them with it. Mm. Uh, The AI will want to turn, you can keep shooting them with it, you can often get this effect of locking them in place while shooting them with it, and so you are simultaneously shooting them with this handgun while you are flying towards them and doing a hop and then you blade and usually it takes two blade hits with the moonlight to kill pretty much any enemy if you're able to do two aerial blades sometimes if you're chasing them down for a while you'll have hit them with so many handgun shots it's like a bunch of handgun shots and one aerial blade but that's the secret sauce that's how you do pretty much every single arena fight Uh, i think early in the run if you're doing an any percent run you will use the machine gun arms for the uh, some of the early subarena fights for some of the enemies that are more paper thin. Mm-hmm. But once you get to halfway through your subarena fights, you go in there and you do it. Some of the missions are also just kind of frustrating. Uh, like um, the defense submarine mission is like a super pain in the ass. I don't like that mission. I really, really, really don't like that mission. Cosign. They uh, we didn't talk about it, but uh, Stephen, do you think this game looks better? than AC1 and Project Phantasma? Honestly, I couldn't notice a difference, or I didn't notice okay. a difference. This game is considered to run better. It is a little bit of a smoother frame rate, okay. and it's a little little less uh, jagged than the first two. Uh, they did do something under the hood because they actually patched out the out-of-bounds method that's available oh. in Armor Core 1 and Project Phantasma. You cannot get out-of-bounds using the same method uh, with the glitched walking animation. So they did something, which is upsetting, because I'd really like to use that in a few places. So that's annoying. So there really isn't, in, in a lot of Armored Core games, uh, people who are more of the uh, the intended game runner types will do the, do the category they call any percent no fail missions, so you can't fail or abort missions, and then no out of bounds. That is kind of a common category for a lot of Japanese runners across much of the PS1 and PS2 series. And uh, in this game, there really is no difference between uh, the out, no out of bounds and regular any percent because, you know, there isn't anywhere as far as I can tell yet. There is a, I mentioned on our first 
retrospective episode that there is a resource website in Japanese that has records of glitches and there is a very, very uh, weird method. I've never been able to reproduce it myself where you can use quad legs to sort of fall through a slope. Again, I haven't been able to do it myself. I've seen video of it, but unfortunately it's not really applicable because it's mostly works in multiplayer arenas, which of course don't help you complete missions faster. As far as speedrun history, there's just a lot less to say here. There's a Nico Nico run out there that's faster than my run. I think my PB in this game is like 55 something. The Nico Nico run is like 52. And the difference is mostly the arena fights. Uh, you just have to get really good. We mentioned earlier that the Master of Arena AI is more distinctive than the Project Phantasma Arena AI. Without a doubt. And so you have a lot of enemies that some of them... So you have to know as the speedrunner... Is this guy going to come straight at me? Is he going to break to the left? Is he going to run away? And adjust accordingly in order to get yeah. those blade hits in faster. So, yeah, it's just, it's, um you know, like, so that's a level of memorization that I frankly wasn't willing to commit to. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's just annoying. It's just, I, I, I did not like doing 20 arena fights. It is definitely a, a run where I learned it. As soon as I was done with it, I, Have you I run it recently. No, I I've run Armored Core One and Project Phantasma re more recently since then. But Master of Arena, I learned Master of Arena. I did the trilogy runs after learning Master of Arena, and that was pretty much it. Like there was just no reason for me to to continue doing that, just because the you know the good the good out of bounds stuff was patched out. The arena fights are annoying. And, you know, that's it. I mean, it's, it's fun as a parlor trick. I had no difficulty using that technique, the, the, the handgun and laser blade to clear out all of the disc one arena fights. Like that wasn't, it was not, not hard at all, but also shout out to needle who I think is even less enthused with this run than I am. He, he has a, I, there's only, he, it is only me and him that are on the speedrun.com leaderboard I think his run is like an hour 15. Clearly, it was just like not interested in dealing with this. He was like uh, Nabashima taking a drag from a cigarette. Yeah, no, for sure. So, uh, again, shout out to Needle, who, of course, you know, runs. I think he's he's run some of the later PS2 games more recently. Mm -hmm. uh, but Master Arena, just not not a fun speedrun time. It, it, it has none of the, I think, uh, without the out-of-bounds stuff, without some of the other optimizations. Because in terms of build, your machine gun arms early on, and then you switch to the, uh, to the uh, you know the the handgun moonlight setup. The moonlight, of course, being the laser sword, the running gag in FromSoft games to have the moonlight blade. Uh, and so you do that, and then at the very end, before the final mission, you go back to the machine gun arms uh, to take care of Nine Ball Seraph, the the you know the, the final boss at the very end. Uh, and that's that's pretty much it as far as the the speedrun information goes. It really just comes down to do you have a consistent method to win arena fights? Because everything else is just picking the shortest missions. Uh, for example, the when when you have to assassinate an armor an AC to get into the arena, mm -hmm. the third the third one just plops you right next to the guy. It, it's you know you don't have to go through a tunnel. You don't have to uh, you know go do anything else. It just puts you at the entrance to the Chrome headquarters. You fight the guy guy's dead and then you know you move on from that point so it's just you know pick the right missions pick the right arena fight memorizing which sub arena fights are the fastest ones to do is also its own i could see you frustrated just by talking about yes this game. i i am <laughs> i am unhappy with this one this is not they they patched everything and then they they amp they made the 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 tedious parts of the game required 
So I'm I am deeply <laughs> unhappy with this. Still a fun game, you know. I mean, it's still Armored Core, so uh, you know, still still worth playing and enjoying. But definitely not what a speedrunner wants. It's actually funny to me looking at that game fan review mm-hmm. that they feel is so mission based. The one they based. accidentally re- revealed Master Arena too. Mm-hmm, right? Yeah. The, the, well, the one that said that they, they looked mission-based games because this game is still somewhat mission-based, but is, of course, definitively less mission-based than one or two. If they took out the mandatory arena fights, would you be warmer on this game? I think I'd be a little warmer. You still end up doing a lot of pseudo-arena yeah. fights in this game yeah. in the missions, as you mentioned before yeah. when it came to AC. Which was a bummer for up. me, too. Yeah. This might turn your frown upside down. I did some research. So you can boot data from play, a PlayStation 1 memory card to PlayStation 2. Oh. So I'm using Suikoden 3 and 2 as an example. Okay, yeah. I'm pulling this from a guide. To load Suikoden 2 data, insert the PS1 memory card with the data into one of the slots in your PS2 with a PS2 memory card in the other slot. I think you have to load it onto the PS2 memory card. You can't play it off the PS2 memory card, but you could load save data from a PS1 memory card and store it on a PS2 memory card. Mm-hmm. You just can't play it from that memory card. Okay, okay. Interestingly enough. And then that's how you do it. And you get some stuff. So I'm curious what other games take advantage of that. Mm, sure, sure. Before we wrap this up, power ranking. PlayStation 1 Armored Core games. We might uh, have the same list. Yeah, it's... I mean, it... I Past th- Arena has more style for me, and I do like the wealth of content that you could mine if you want to i just don't like the progression in the game all that much and the the game flow is mightily disrupted by the mandatory arena fights yeah i think it might just be in order for me mm-hmm. uh because i think the sort of uh, the the sort of lack of an upfront narrative the surprise endings the way the game sort of trickles to the end in the original armored core uh, is just extremely compelling the variety of missions and the variety of outcomes, you know, you're destroying things, you're rescuing things, you're destroying giant weapons, you're, you know, doing this and that. It's just like Project Phantasma, I think, has some of that DNA because the missions are still, uh, still have an excellent variety uh, while having a consistent villain. Master of Arena oftentimes is like, you know, here's here's that corridor which you're used to navigating, but it's always going to be the same thing at the end almost, except for like the derelict spaceship. Uh, and and again the the required arena fights like I, like I get it I get the ambition of wanting to incorporate the arena into the narrative, but the arena exists so outside the fiction because of the things I mentioned before in regards to Project Phantasma in terms mm. of the costs and the risks, which is to say there are none. Uh, that it it's kind of weird to to try and incorporate it to act like it's really real. Yeah, I do like the, on a thematic level how the corporation basically owns you and sponsors you in the arena. I mean, it's a service level criticism, mm-hmm. but it's still sure, sure. nice to see. I will say I do like Master Arena's approach to storytelling more. I more than Project Phantasm because it's more in line with one. I like just the random not random, but the more eclectic choice of mission assignments. That I like because each new one is like a I don't know, it's like a new treat. Where in the world are they going to throw me and what will I be doing? Again, usually the corporations are sending you on some stupid-ass mission, but still you get to see other aspects of the world, which I like. Mm-hmm. I think my my power ranking is basically the same. There are parts of Project Phantasma's story and like overall vibe and mood that kind of, 
I'm a little down on, so they might be a little closer to neck and neck, but this is kind of for someone who really sucks ass at Armored Core too. I mean, Armored Core in general. So I really didn't dive deep into any of the supplemental material, which honestly, now that I own a physical copy of the game, I kind of want to do at some point. That the second disc is tantalizing. Mm-hmm. The idea of a second disc of content out there is tantalizing. It's like the epilogue in Lunar 2, except it's nowhere going to be nowhere near as satisfying as that. But yeah, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. We got a nice, we got a nice chunky, almost three hours on Project Phantasma Master Arena. I, I almost didn't think it would be possible. I mean, you know, there's always a disc two waiting for you out there. That's true. There's always more content. Now, the way we envision this going forward, again, if we're doing this for years and years, we'll cover more from software ground. Definitely, the next game, if and when we cover it, will be next from software game. Will be Frame Grind, which I'm very interested to check out. Be a breezy game. Not too much is known about the game in the U.S., but I might be able to maybe whip up a, like an interesting guest for it. Yeah, well, you know what? I mean, I you know certainly it helps that there is some fan interest in it because there was an English translation put out within the past few years. Yeah. So, of course, you know, that's a great lead for us to work with. The art uh, whips, though. I imagine mm-hmm. since Kawamori was working on it and he also worked on Escaflone, if there's some creative connective tissue between the two things. How, how does it play, do you know? Uh, my understanding is that it uh, it's like a little chunkier. I think is is my oh, what I believe because you know, it's a fantasy it's a fantasy uh, infused game. Uh, so I'm I'm curious to see. I mean, I can only imagine playing on on, on a uh, Dreamcast pad that it's not, <laughs> it's not going to be you know, anything uh, high flying, so to speak. It's going to be. Pretty pretty rugged to be on one of those boys. I wonder if the VMU support will, is similar to the Master Arena Pocket Station support. I wonder. T- yeah, I wonder if that would have anything. Um, I guess probably, <laughs> the only Dreamcast game I've really spent a lot of time playing at this point on a hard on a physical Dreamcast was Rise from the Ashes, which didn't really have anything on VMU. Oh, so uh, you know, hopefully, maybe Frame Grad will. Obviously, Master Arena had Pocket Station support, so we might get to Rise of Ashes before we get to Frame Grad, though. I, I don't know. They're both the idea of applying both is um is of interest to at least me. I think PMC as well. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, we hope you enjoyed. Um, it's very fun to put these together. Again, very time consuming, but we think and we hope that it is well worth your money. I guess we can announce this here because only so many people are listening to it at this moment. But we do plan to make some changes to the Patreon tiers, which involve some slight and I think beneficial changes to the simulator release. They'll still be. Um, I guess paywalled behind the $10 level, but we aim to release at least one simulator episode every two months, which essentially what we're doing now, because this is two months Mm -hmm. from the last episode. Right. But originally when we did the pitch every three months, but I think I could crank these out every, depending on what game we're playing every two months. Yeah. I mean, the good news, I guess as, as Steven has mentioned before, uh, you know, there's, there's no shortage of mecha games, but there is sometimes kind of a shortage of information about them. So uh, not that, you know, obviously, you know, there's there's going to be episodes where there's going to be maybe too much information. But uh, but sometimes, you know, you have Project Fantasma and Master Arena where we really just sort of have to see what's out there and, you know, see what we can get. I imagine in Japan there is more information on both these games. I'm sure there's a guides for both of them that have more production information. But again... That information can also be a curse because it means much more legwork on our parts. And we trust we put feelers out there, we, and no one answered the I answered the bat signal. So for better or for worse, this is the definitive I think 
history of the production of both games. So I'm proud to say that we've we've accomplished that, PMC. And we've podcasted about the first three Armored Core games for almost probably over five hours. Mm-hmm. So Certainly, yeah. yeah. Which is a feather in one's cap. One other change, which will be also announced on public feeds, is that we are planning to cover... I know we said Titanfall 2, and I, I hope to get to Titanfall 2 within a year's worth, like a year's span. There's a lot more supplemental material and history documentation that I want to get through. Trust me, I've already bought stuff for it. I bought the two ARP Titanfall art books, so I do plan to return to it. And Titanfall 2 is a game very near and dear to my heart, but we want to be on the ground floor for the release of Front Mission, and we feel we would be in a better position to do that if Front Mission was the game we're t- tackling next because it's going to require two simulator episodes because the history is going to be rather substantial. There's a lot to talk about. And that's going to probably take up nearly a three-hour episode. And then, of course, we have a lot to say about Front Mission 1. And you have some experience with that game. You played the DS. Yes, I did. I did play what? both campaigns in the DS version. I'm actually really curious. Do you know if they ever confirmed that both both of the DS campaigns would be in the remake? Probably not, right? We don't have a release date yet, nor yeah. do we have really anything other than that first right. trailer, which is really just a CG story trailer, except there's a smidge of like gameplay. Yeah, fresh. we saw like a little bit of interface in terms of because you know one of the hallmarks of front mission gameplay is being able to see what happens when individual parts are blown up, whether it be left arm, right arm, you know, back weapon, head, etc. Uh, and so we got like a little bit of that, a little bit of the taste of how this remake would be different. Um, which was interesting to me. You know, I, I, to be clear, I don't want it to be the same because yeah. if I want the same thing, the DS version is great. It's right there. I like when it zooms in. I like how the Wanzers look in a garage. I think the sprites on an average map, it's very muddy. I'm not the biggest fan of the aesthetic. G-Craft games suffered from this in general. They mm-hmm. made the Ark the Lad games. I think the first two Ark the Lad games, they have a lot going for them. Graphics-wise, the colors are very muted. It's kind of like an Xbox 360 game, and I don't think they're all that aesthetically pleasing, even though there's some really cool sprite work in there. Yeah, uh, certainly they're they're. It's a weird mix of uh, taste. Of course, we'll get this when we get there. But you know, the, with the avatar art that they have on top of these sprites, it has always been kind of a, an interesting flavor. Uh, I would say I'm more partial, of course. I think three is the ultimate front mission aesthetic, but yeah, we'll get there when we get there. Agreed. Though I'm, I'm really interested to see how the remake of Front Mission 2 shapes out, and I desperately want to play Front Mission 5. But we've got a lot of Front Mission games to play mm-hmm. before then, including Front Mission 4, which is eh. And Gun Hazard. I'm very excited. Gun Hazard looks great. You won't like it as much, I think. I probably won't. I'm curious to see how I like it. And you know, and also, I'm going to put this thought into your brain. You can refuse it. Uh, Evolved is out there, too. So is Alternate. I'm, I'm more keen on <laughs> Alternate, but I, I'll play Evolved. What system is that out on? Evolved? Yeah. Evolved is, it's it's uh, pretty much, yeah, 7-gen. It's on PC, too. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So, anyway, you have that to look forward to. Two Front Mission episodes before the end of the year, pres- assuming that Front Mission comes out. I'm, we think it's going to come out August or September. We're waiting on a lot of release dates to set a giant robot FM schedule going forward. If Disco Tech can just announce Gunbuster when it's dropping, and if Square can just announce when the Front Mission remake is coming out and there's a lot coming out so i don't know live alive's coming out and there is an unannounced tactics ogre waiting in the rings wings so who knows but you can look forward to that and maybe a shorter game before the end of the year so we thank you very much for your patronage and definitely make sure that you 
advertise this. If you like this episode a lot, definitely promote it if you can on social media accounts. Uh, draw more eyes to it. I don't think anyone online is doing this creation work to this degree that we are doing with Mecha Games. So I could imagine. I do imagine there's an audience for this, and I imagine they would be um, happy to see it promoted. With that, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, everyone. As Hustler One always says, respect the strongest. Hello, this is Future PMC again, reminding you that what you just finished listening to was our simulator coverage of Project Phantasma and Master of Arena. Now we will be including a supplemental podcast filling in some of the details we missed in our two-part Armored Core PS1 retrospective. Enjoy. This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We have we have we have a special episode. We have I guess we're kind of launching a new type of pop PMC. How would you categorize what we're about to do? I think this is a nice little supplemental piece of content. Yeah. This is a. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. Here's the cool thing is that there's always more to learn. And certainly since we have an interest in doing some research and analysis and other activities like that with, uh, you know, the the games and anime, sometimes sometimes we kind of want to circle back around because cool stuff comes out. Yeah, so we're calling this Simulator Addendum Episode 1, and this Episode 1 of the Addendum series will be focusing on Armored Core. I had envisioned a supplemental podcast like this for a while, because there's always the potential I stumble upon a whole bunch of research, which might disprove a lot of what I discuss on a history mm-hmm. episode, which isn't necessarily the case here. But you, I might also learn a lot of clarifying details um, about the production history of a video game or anime that I want to just tell a bunch of people about, which is the purpose of this. I also thought in my head, like, all right, we're recording an Armored Core episode, and we're going to be recording a Zardian episode later this month. What happens if Schmoplations releases one of those interviews that they have under lock and key and it changes the conversation about the game? Or it gives it just so much, it sheds so much light on the production history that I would feel bad if I didn't go back and mention it. Yeah, no, it's important to, it's just, you know, to add to what we've presented and, you know, to update on that. It's, uh, and it's fun to do too. I mean, we, we like doing it in the first place. So what happened here was I we released our Armored Core episode, the first episode, part one, to it with a lot of positive feedback. And on, honestly, the information that we presented to you all is pretty accurate as far as we can tell. But I stumbled upon a, I think it was a French message board. And the individual posting on the French message board, I, got, I was using a raw Google Translate, or a raw Google Translation. 
And there's a bunch of in interesting information about the origins of From Software, which I believe the person in question pulled from a book published in the 1990s with development stories from a bunch of different studios. And I want to go over that information today. I also got a transcript of the From Software chapter in Japanese, which I uh, ran through DeepL to confirm some of these um, facts. Um, so I have, I have a bunch of interesting facts about the founding of From Software. And then I discovered some like merchandise related to Armored Core that I want to talk about, some of which has interesting lore implications. Most of this is Armored Core 1 information. There is a bit on Master of Arena and a small bit on Project Phantasma. And then I also learned something interesting about a, a, a budget release of Armored Core that mm -hmm. I had no idea existed. So yeah, let's just jump right in. Let's jump right in. So again, if you haven't listened to our Armored Core episode, the history episode, which is on the free feed, I recommend you do so um, because it'll help give you some context. Because we're going to be dropping in these informational bits um, chronologically, but it, it's, it's meant to complement that original episode. All right, so like I mentioned earlier, I discovered more details about the founding of From Software. It seems that Naotoshi Zin, the founder, got into a moped accident that same year, so 1986. And while recovering in his hospital bed, he wondered what to do with the insurance money. And because the tech industry was booming in Japan at the time, he decided to start a software company and kept the name very simple, From Software. Now, interestingly, there's a music track from the first game, and someone mentioned this on Twitter, it kind of stuck with me, called Insurance Money. PMC, do you remember this linking up with a specific mission? Because I had trouble remembering that bit. All right, I'm going to do the excellent podcasting thing and listen to it right now. Oh, I don't think this one... Okay. So I don't think this one links up. I think I feel like I mostly think of that as an arena track. Mm -hmm. um, but that if it's in the first Armored Core, of course, there's no arena. I'm sure someone's saying that right now. Uh, hmm. I wonder what if that was. Now I have to go. Okay, now I have to go listen and figure out where it is. But anyway, the answer is I do not recall this linking up with a particular mission. That's, that the, is the, the one where the, that's the one that has like the shouting effect. Faster, mm. faster, faster. Like it's very. <laughs> it is I like all Armored Core music. Excellent. It could be from Project Phantasma because that first soundtrack contains music from the first two games. Oh, yeah, you might be right. You might be right. I just thought that was interesting mm -hmm. uh, considering sure. the connection. I guess the potential connection. I learned a bit more about From Software's HQ. So I mentioned that they were that their studio was founded in Tokyo, which is true. They established their headquarters in the Ichigo Sasazuka building in Shibuya, Tokyo, and which and they're still at this that building now, which is I find fascinating. They've occupied the space for almost forty years, but they do have a second studio located in Fukuoka. Presumably, this is where the new Armored Core is being made. I imagine Elden Ring was developed in Tokyo. Um, they have their side studio, their B studio, um, in Fukuoka, Fukuoka. So maybe that rumored Armored Core is being developed there as we speak. It's haunting. It's out there. You don't, you don't know. It's got to be. It's going to completely change our schedule if it's announced. Now, some of From's early software, um, we theorize as to what that could have been. We talked about accounting programs. This book on the early days of From Software, this chapter from this book, included a bit more information about what sorts of software they developed. Uh, one program they developed was programmed to manage the food allocated to pigs 
for the Japanese Farmers Association. And in our first episode, I pondered whether any box copies of their early software exist. But now that I read this chapter, I know more and I know more about the studio's origins. I realize that's not really an appropriate question to ask. It seems that From was more work for hire, which means that interested parties would approach the company to develop software specific to their needs. So their software wouldn't have hit store shelves. It wasn't distributed publicly. Yeah, you know, that's that's important to point out when it comes to business models of that kind of thing, because I, I feel bad I didn't think of that before, but it did remind me, you know, just to, maybe to give an example for listeners in terms of what this is like. This is, you know, this is even more specific because businesses at the time, you know, even if they were using general processing computers to do whatever they were doing, uh, you know, they would still probably need software that would be specific to whatever business processes they were doing uh, or even just training. I, you know, the I think the most famous example of this is, uh, and, and if it got, is a version of it came out in like 2020, but it's something from the early 90s. Uh, Stephen, have you heard of Sim Refinery? I have not, no. So, you know, you're probably familiar with things like SimCity, right? Mm-hmm. So Maxis had a division in the early '90s that was uh, that was for hire. <laughs> that was exactly it was, and Sim Refinery was a product that was really going to be just for businesses. Now this is still, you know, it still looks like a game, kind of. You know, it's it's re- relying, it's relying, I think, on the fiction that Sim City was in fact like running a city, which of course, you know, it's not really. Uh, but you know the idea here being that you had a simulation that could be used for training or information and was being tailored to the specific wants and needs of these industry clients. Uh, now, obviously, this is Sim Refinery. Still, as I said, you know has kind of the user interface of a game. Is a you had a spinoff division of a game studio. Uh, obviously, it's likely that From Software's early projects were much more specifically to, suited to the industry involved. Yeah. I imagine they also programmed software for uh, governments, like local mm-hmm. governments. Yeah. Um, yeah, stuff like that. Right. Those kinds of systems all the time would have, you know, backends that would need to be tailored and specifically made for whatever application you're, you're involved in. So theoretically, there might be a few floppies out there, but... Um, um, they're probably locked away. In yeah, they probably melted, basement. but they also, you would probably, you know, I mean, that's the other thing too, is that uh, listeners are probably, you know, some of them, especially ones that are interested in older games, are probably familiar with a lot of the the Japanese PCs, the, you know, the 88s, the uh, PC, yeah. 98, so on. Of course, those were, you know, those were salaryman computers, you know, and the games are sort of, uh, you know, almost an after the fact thing, I think. Um, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe from software programmed a business application for you know that would that a business would use on this. Yeah. Now, like I mentioned before, from software's first steps into game development occurred when bored employees began tooling around during downtime at work, which we mentioned on the first episode. But I learned a little bit more about what like the first prototype looked like and how it played. This first prototype was probably programmed by Aichi Hasegawa, who we mentioned before. Hasegawa was basically like From's star programmer in the, during the first few years of the company's um, history as a game developer. And this early game featured a robot navigating a labyrinth. I would love to see, I, don't, I imagine the code is, has since been lost to time, but I would love to see screenshots of this. I could even feature the robot 
even if it exists in a very abstract state on a mecha day. But it sounds like a Kingsfield meets Armored Core, basically. Mm-hmm. Wizardry with a uh, with a mech. <laughs> yeah, you know there uh, that I, yes, absolutely. There are some games like that even nowadays. Um, I would be I would be curious to see what if they look at all like this hidden prototype. I'm interested, like the graphical fidelity too, because From was made the transition to game development because they thought that the specs on the PlayStation were advanced enough to handle um, whatever prototype they mm-hmm. developed on the back end. So I'm curious. Does it look like a prototypical PlayStation game, or does it look like something else entirely? Yeah, for sure. Now, when Naotoshi Zin, the founder, saw the prototype, he was very much taken with the idea of game development, both for financial and creative reasons. Apparently, software companies were struggling during the, the early years of the 90s recession, and they needed to diversify their portfolio. And what better way to do that than make video games? Also, Zin was a was and is a big fan of games and he definitely left his creative imprint and creative design philosophy um, with the company Um, but he decided at this time to form a small team and got to work on quote quote unquote crystal dragon which was the original name of kingsfield like the the name of the prototype Mm -hmm. now when from facts their proposal outlining their vision of the game kingsfield to sony they got approval, but Sony doubted the game would perform well. They also doubted that Armored Core would sell well, as too. Um, originally, they estimated that Kingsfield would sell only about 10,000 copies, which would not cover development costs. Fortunately, Kingsfield blew past these estimates, selling 200,000 copies in the first six months. Now, FromSoft also acknowledges that the game benefited from launching so close to the release of the PlayStation. It definitely got that launch window bump and buzz. Now, speaking of the first Armored Core, I also discovered some neat merchandise related to the first three games. In 1997 and 1998, From released company calendars, which featured a lot of artwork and mechanical designs from those early Armored Core games. So if you ever need to get PMC a Christmas present, you know what to buy. Was it you only check- Armored Core? Or did they have... The- so the 97 calendar is only Armored Core. Okay. The 98 calendar has... Uh, illustrations from Project Phantasma and whatever else from release in 98. Shadow... Echo Knight? Shadow Tower? Might be Shadow Tower. Shadow Tower? Could be. Might be Echo Knight. Okay. If you want to check these out, they are um, a intrepid fan whom we're all indebted to uploaded very high-res images of each month. Oh. And I will say, these are the highest-res illustrations relating to the first two Armored Core games that probably exist on the internet. Cool. So if you ever want to see some really cool Calamari artwork, definitely check it out. Mm-hmm. Notably, and I'm really pissed I forgot to mention this in our last Simulator episode, there are two Armored Core light novels that were published in the late 90s. There are other Armored Core novels. I actually stumbled upon a list of all tie-in novels that relate to From Software properties. So oh. not just Armored Core, but other stuff too. Now, these first two novels... And again, I should use the term light novels because they feature a lot of illustrations. They were both written by Sammy Shinosaki, who also wrote a couple of Fire Emblem books and a few other video game novelizations. The first book is called The Fake Illusions, and the second is simply called Master of Arena. PMC, did you know either of these existed? 
I don't think so. I want to say the only the only Armored Core uh, supplemental material like this I was aware of was the uh, the Tower Blade manga, which I had found yeah. scanlations of. But uh, this this is news to me. Not a whole lot of information exists in English, so it's not surprising that you didn't hear about these. Um, which is unfortunate because we know so little about the first Armored Core timeline that you know I, I'm very curious if these books shed light on any of the world building or have interesting implications regarding the lore. The games, of course, gesture to a lot of interesting concepts, but we never get elaboration or clarification, which I get that enigmatic type of storytelling that From's famous for is appealing. But nonetheless, I do have a lot of questions after finishing the first three games. But you can find scans online, and I do recommend you seek them out. They feature a lot of cool artwork, and the scans that exist online are pretty high res. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking right now at a, at a picture of the, the covers of them, and they do seem very neat. Now, Fake Illusions tells the story of, I don't even know how I would go about pronouncing this name. Leannon? Like, like Leannon Sider? Leannon? I would do Leannon. Okay. Yeah, I think it's Leannon. Leannon Sider, who, at least according to one Japanese website, might be the protagonist of the first Armored Core, or at least, I guess, a narrative take on the first uh, protagonist of the first Armored Core game. Uh, the book takes place a year after the collapse of Chrome, Murakumo, and the Raven's Nest. In other words, a year after the end of the first game. The Ravens, all those mercenaries, they no longer have their nest, their HQ, so they must find requests on their own. And I assume that this book features Lianon and the other Ravens trying to track down work in this still post-apocalyptic world. Mm-hmm. Now, unsurprisingly, the Master of Arena novel is a direct tie-in to its namesake. Many characters who we only know through email correspondence factor into the story. Plus, some of these characters, like Elon Cubis, are illustrated in character profiles, so we can actually see what they look like, or at least an interpretation of what they look like. Elon, Elon is... Who, who do you think of when you're looking when you look at It looks at like a blonde uh, Otacon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 100%. That's not how I pictured him when I was playing the game. I pictured him as being older, to be honest. Yeah, Sam. Like a gray hair, Dr. Light, Dr. Wily kind of person. Yeah, exactly. Now, like the first book, obviously, Master Marine is all in Japanese. But one of the opening pages features a bit of English that's hilarious. You turn the page, like this is probably page four or five, and it goes, Wanna be a Laven? Of course, it's the R and L mix up. Um, but still, it's very funny. It's the 50-50. gets you every time. And it's funny because in the previous book, they, they used the English of Raven with the R. I also learned that Armored Core was released in America after Armored Core 2 as a budget title by Age Tech. Um, before we dive into this, PMC, why don't you read this IGN News article from November 30th, 2000? This is violence to me, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Have you already got Armored Core 2 for PlayStation 2 and missed out on the original? Don't despair. HTech has come to your rescue with the December 5th re-release of the original Armored Core four, year af four years after its debut. Quote, With the release of this Armored Core title, HTech will have completed the cycle and brought gamers all four of the series' titles, said Kevin Sullivan, Vice President of Sales and Marketing at HTech Incorporated. Quote, In addition... With the recent release of Armored Core 2 for the PlayStation 2, 
This game's release will work to further strengthen the brand, end quote. This re-release will feature 45 missions and two-player battles and will retail for a price-friendly $20. Original game had 45 missions. I don't know what that's about. It bothers me so much. <laughs> yeah, the wording is very strange. Some awkward syntax, too. So I, um, I didn't know about this um, because... When you when you go into the dark parts of the internet looking for video games, you'll notice that there is an Armored Core 1.0 and an Armored Core 1.1, and 1.1 among whoever I don't know I didn't actually find anything in the game, but it refers to this release. And as far as I could tell, the only difference is the you get an age tech splash uh, when you boot up the game. Uh, I am not aware of any difference. If you if you're a listener and you know there's a difference. Please let me know. I speedrun this game, and if there's an important difference, I really want to know. The wording here by Kevin Sullivan's is interesting too. He goes, "Let's see what it's so with the release of this Armored Core title, Age Tech will have completed the cycle and brought gamers all four of the series titles." I guess they 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 view themselves. Age Tech internally views themselves as a natural extension of ASCII. Absolutely, yeah, I think that's yeah. correct. Because Project Phantasma was never released under the Age Tech branding. No, it was yeah, it was under the ASCII Entertainment branding. And apparently, Age Tech specialized in these budget titles. I don't know. I can't provide any specific examples, ah! but I know there are other releases. Oh, Stephen, I can. Okay. Would you like to know about the thrilling? One of the most thrilling titles on on PS1 here. Let me see if I can bring up one for you here. Uh, Are you ready for that timeless classic? Racing? (laughs) (laughs) So I think think this was like a series. uh, Yeah, so HDEC had a lot of late PS1 games. I think they were also responsible for... Oh, God, there's a puzzle game... Uh, it w- I think it was called like Sorcerer something. Uh, this is gonna bother me. Um, oh God, I hate search engines. Oh no, wait, wait, wait. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Is this is it, was this Sorcerer's? No, this wasn't Age Tech, was it? She. Um. All right, never mind. Sorcerer's made apparently not Age Tech. That's that's upsetting. But anyway, they did a lot of these. They were often had extremely basic names. They were almost, I mean, they were the kind of closest thing I think that we had in the North American market to something like the Simple Series in Japan. Okay. Were they developed by American developers? Uh, I think so. It depends on the game, honestly. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I couldn't say with confidence. It, gotcha. I mean, I don't think it was anything quite. So there is, um, I'm sure, you know, some people are aware of this. There is a developer uh, called Midas Interactive, or was, yeah, I think it's Midas Interactive, who is infamous in uh, in this time period for doing budget games, uh, and they did a lot of localizations of simple series games in PAL regions. Uh, so you get a lot okay. of weird English language games that like never made it to North America, but like because Midas just put them out in PAL because I guess they could get the rights cheap. Okay. Budget games are weird. Yeah, that uh, that basically does bring us to the end of this very short addendum episode. So I, I have some a few more bits I want to go over, but like that's the bulk of the information I wanted to present to you, the listeners. Mm-hmm. There are some things that exist on the internet that could change the conversation 
about the development of the Armored Core trilogy, the first trilogy, if they ever get released in English. There is a... So Schmaplations has two Armored Core interviews, one relating to the first game and one relating to Project Phantasma that could potentially be translated and, again, shed a lot of light on this early period of From Software history. There is an interview, like with Naotoshi Zen, a video interview where it's like from a Japanese talk show, and they go to From Software's HQ. That exists on the internet, but no one's translated it. There are mm. so few interviews with Zen. I would love to see someone do that curation work. Plus, it's From Software, so you'll get the clicks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There are a bunch of videos on the Internet Archive. Actually, if you click, if you type in armored core or any from software video game on the internet archive you'll find a bunch of cool stuff there are prototypes of frame grind and early demos released you could check out on there and i'm sure there are plenty of other from software calendars too but there i think it was for the 10th anniversary from software compiled a bunch of interviews with its developers Mm -hmm. chronicling the development of these games and like looking back at these games all those videos are online. Most of them re- refer back to the PS2 Armored Core games. But nonetheless, these are video interviews with these developers. I would love to see someone go back and provide subtitles mm-hmm. for them. I think that's unlikely, but maybe if that new Armored Core game exists, maybe they'll go back and do that as kind of like a retrospective. Yeah, you know, that's... Uh, gosh, that's that's an interesting one, definitely, too. Because I, I do wonder what the future is for... The future is for From Software. I feel like we're in an era now where a lot of Japanese developers are mining their back catalog and seeing some amount of success. Like I, you know, Square Enix, Capcom, uh, you know, they're they're really laying Sega. You know, they're having I think success porting these games to different platforms and re-releasing them. Uh, which you know begs the question: Hey, FromSoft, you know, if you if you if a new Armored Core is successful, you know, what what does that mean? For uh, you know, for their back catalog, so yeah, especially considering that From Software's name carries so much yeah. cachet that it will just sell copies. Right. there'll be tons of people streaming Kingsfield if they release a yes, set 100%. of the first four games. Like no, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just I, I can't like the after the absolutely bewildering success of Elden Ring. I mean, not bewildering. I mean, it's you know bewildering and just like how not that it was a bad game and how could it be successful, but like. It was really successful. <laughs> like this is, you know, it really, it, it you know, it, it usurped the usual suspects for, you know, for a period of time. So, uh, you know, that's that's really impressive. And that's anything with the FromSoft name on it, it's going to have, there's going to be dollar signs there. Now, speaking of From Software's name, I'm going to, that's going to be the last bit we're going to talk about. I discovered a, some fan compiled everything they could find relating to literature that's related to from software mm. games so originally i was under the assumption that pmc was under that there was only the armored core manga tower city blade tower city blade yeah but there's actually a quite a few other novels or tie-in light novels related to the armored core franchise we're not going to go over all these in depth because these these might come up in future history episodes but there's some material relating back to front armored core 4 armored core 3 some of which apparently is in english Oh, there, there is. This is relevant to PMC because you're streaming this. There is an Evergrace novelization, and seems to be a few um, pieces of literature related to Evergrace. Mm-hmm. There's, there is something related to the Adventures of Cookie and Cream too, which I did not expect. I mean, hey, that's an important part of the canon too. 
It's uh, I'm told it's a very good co-op game. Oh, that's right, Kuan, the game that I want. Oh, uh, no, Steven, don't buy Kuan. You... I'm not gonna buy it. Okay, I mean, if, if I don't know, if our local mom pop for some reason wanted to take a financial hit and sold it for like seventy five dollars, uh. I would buy it. Is Kuan supposed to be? I was under the impression that Kuan's is decent, like janky yeah, decent, kind of like yeah. Siren. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's fair. Siren. It's it's just like it's like a janky spooky tenchu. You know, you're like walking around some wooden house with like a sword, and you mm. know, a lot of Lost Kingdoms two web comics, anti and manga. There's an Enchanted Arms manga. See, so yeah, I'm sure I'll post this on Twitter eventually. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, yeah, but definitely um, seek these out if you're so interested. It's shocking that there's no Bloodborne manga out there. Yeah, that's that's weird. I mean, I guess, it, you know, we're looking at this, and I guess, yeah, there is a Sekiro thing, but there's not any any Souls literature? I think that, I think uh, there's probably an internal reason for that. They want to, like, maintain the mystique around the brand. Yeah, or, I don't know, maybe maybe it's like a Bamco thing. Who knows what the how yeah. the licensing works out there, because Bamco might, might be selling products. True. Um, or, or Sony. It depends on what publisher they're linked up with. Sure, sure, yeah. But yeah, that brings us to the end of this very short but hopefully delicious and tasty simulator addendum episode. I imagine the future going forward, unless there's a whole fuck ton of information that I forgot to mention in one of our history episodes, whenever we do release an addendum, they'll be on the shorter side. But hopefully that you found the our discussion interesting and the tidbits illuminating. Yeah, it's always great to bring light to these things, especially too, because we're—I mean—we're not only highlighting, of course, the original material and learning more about the original material, but we're also highlighting efforts to you know preserve and share it. Like schmuplations, yeah. they rule. The folks doing this work of you know curating and collecting all these from software, you know, literary tidbits, great. Uploading the calendars, awesome. Yeah, if any schmuplations patrons are listening. Definitely vote for either the Armored Core interviews or the Zardion interviews. I am very interested to read all of them. And or vote for Front Mission too. Um, because that I if that's not translated by the time we get around to covering Front Mission 2 for a simulator episode, um, our simulator episode history retrospective is gonna be on the shorter side. Yeah, it does yeah. it does hurt when <laughs> when you gotta work that out. I also hope. Uh, who knows when the get with the remakes coming out? If the remake still exists for two. Oh yeah, yeah. Because that fan translation patch is rough. Yeah, that's rough. Um, especially because yeah, no, for for in in battle you're okay, but the cutscenes you gotta just have the text out for. It is it is difficult. Any concluding thoughts, PMC, before we leave our listeners? Uh, as always, I have to give you my best advice from Nine Ball, which is respect the strongest. Well said.